Welcome to the Ask the Experts podcast. Here's Karen Bhatia. I am Karen Bhatia. This is Ask the Experts, and we are coming off the phenomenal performance by Deontay Wilder, knocking out Luis Ortiz in their rematch. He knocked him out in the seventh round, but it wasn't all smooth sailing for Deontay. He was actually losing the fight on all three judges' scorecards. Two of the judges had Ortiz up 59 to 55. The other judge had Ortiz up 58 to 56. Every judge gave Wilder the sixth round, but unanimously, they all gave Ortiz rounds two through five. But we all know the scorecards did not matter because in that seventh round, Deontay Wilder found his patented right hand, and we call it the great eraser for a reason. He erased Luis Ortiz. And if you look at the punch numbers, actually, Ortiz outlanded Wilder in the entire fight. Ortiz landed 35 punches, Wilder 34. But as I said, it was that 34th punch that took out Luis Ortiz. And now we look forward to Tyson Fury and his rematch with Deontay Wilder. Hopefully it happens for February 22nd. There's talks that it'll be at the MGM Grand. That's the fight we all want to see, of course, The first time it was the thrilling fight where Fury is out boxing Wilder. Wilder finally catches him in round nine. Fury gets up, still doing his thing. And then, of course, the absolutely dramatic round 12 where Wilder landed the right hand, followed by the left hook as Fury's falling back. Fury barely beats the count. And I am going to be speaking to Deontay Wilder, and I'll also be speaking to Jack Reese, who actually did that count uh, against Tyson Fury. So let, let's get into who we're talking to today. So Deontay Wilder, we know he just came off the big win. I spoke with him last week uh, r- leading up to the fight, and um, if you haven't heard that interview, I'm going to put that up here because we talked a lot about future matchups. We talked about Tyson Fury. Um, I got Deontay's actual official pick uh, for Ruiz versus Joshua. We have that big rematch coming up, and, and I'm going to give uh, Deontay's thoughts on who's going to win that fight and why, because that could be a potential opponent for him if he is able to get past uh, Tyson Fury in the rematch. I also asked Deontay, everyone knows that I've been adamant about trying to make boxing safer, and we've had these tragedies in our sport. We've had five deaths, uh, reported deaths this year in boxing, and Deontay Wilder is on the record for saying he wants a body on his record. And What does he mean by that? He wants to actually end someone's career and their life in the ring, and um, that's that's a pretty polarizing thing to say, as, as it should be, right? Some people say, well, that's, that's just a fighter's mindset. Other people say that that's not the correct thing to say, especially with these tragedies in our sport. So I actually asked him that. I said, we've had these tragedies in the sport. You've said this comment before. Do you still feel that way? And he's actually going to give me a direct answer. So you'll hear that um, in our interview. After that, I'll be talking to Christopher Bates. I just conducted the interview with Chris Bates, and that is Deontay Wilder's personal security guard. It's his personal assistant. He he stands behind Deontay at, at every event. He was obviously uh, ringside for the fight. If you watch the fight, you notice that right after Chris Bates gets in the ring and him and Wilder are celebrating, they're dancing, um, they're singing. So I asked Chris Bates about his perspective of Deontay Wilder's uh, big win over Luis Ortiz. And then looking forward, what's next for Team Wilder? Are they all set for this Tyson Fury rematch? Is this definitely going to happen? Do they want Ruiz or Joshua after that? What? So I spoke to, to Chris Bates about all that and more. And then I mentioned Jack Reese. So I spoke to Jack Reese, and I wanted to put that interview up here because 
we talked about the count uh, for Tyson Fury versus uh, Deontay Wilder. That 12th round count is scrutinized big time, right? Um, some people say that it was a slow count, and that Deontay Wilder says that um, directly. You'll hear that in my interview with him. Jack Reese, of course, says he was following um, the, the protocol. It's the referee's count. It's also, if you take a stopwatch to it, um, it's within the 10-second limit. The when the fighter goes down, the count starts when the referee says one, and the count doesn't finish actually until they finish until the referee finishes saying ten. It's not as the guy's getting up and the referee says ten and waves it off. No, I have actually been talking with Jack Reese, and he he wants to point out that the rule is that the referee must finish saying ten for you to wave it off. So if you look at it through those parameters, and you can even take a stopwatch to it, Fury did get up in time. And we're going to talk to Jack Reese about his reasoning because sometimes you see referees just wave off a fight when a guy gets hit that hard um jack reese chose not to do that and part of his reasoning was because fury was the ch- champion in his mind uh, the lineal champion in this case obviously deontay wilder of course also the wbc heavyweight uh champion he wanted to give fury that opportunity to get up and if you notice when fury got up he was doing damage he he actually came back in that that 12th round so we're going to talk to jack reese about that we also spoke extensively about the logan paul ksi fight there was controversy if you are a ksi fan you think maybe ksi should have gotten the knockdown in round three i asked jack reese about that and he's going to explain very clearly his reasoning for not calling that uh knockdown in round three for ksi and then of course uh in the fourth round logan paul he lands the uppercut but then he holds ksi's head lands another uppercut and hits ksi while he's on the way down he actually attempted to hit ksi again uh as he was falling down so jack reese decided to take out Uh, take off two points from Logan Paul. He didn't want to disqualify him. He wanted to take off two points. And we're going to talk to him exactly about why he did that, right? He he explains his reasoning very clearly, and he's going to break it down um, why he did that. Now, two-point deductions are rare, but Jack Reese has actually done that before. Uh, In in a previous fight, he gave both fighters um, two-point deductions. But I wanted to talk to Lee Groves, and that's going to be my next guest. Lee Groves, he's a CompuBox researcher, he's an author, he's a boxing historian, and I wanted to talk to him about the history of two-point deductions. How common are they? And we talked about examples that he could find in his research. Um, So we're going to get into that uh, with Lee Groves. After that, I am on a debate show with Dan Canobio, and uh, it's called Standing 8 Count. Um, It's featured on Inside Boxing Live. You can watch it on Pluto TV. You can watch it on YouTube. You can hear it on Apple Podcasts. And we, of course, reacted uh, this week to the great Wilder Ortiz fight. We tried to unpack it. We talked about future matchups, and I'm going to play a couple topics from our debate show, you know, a couple back-and-forth moments so you can hear our reaction to um, the big Deontay Wilder fight. And my last guest, you're going to want to hear this. It's Eric Pollan. Now, you may not know who that is, so I'm going to explain it. Eric Pollan is the producer for PBC Fight Camp. And what that means is for 30 days, for a whole month, he was looking at exclusive footage of Deontay Wilder and Luis Ortiz in training camp as they prepared for their fight. He was seeing footage come in every day from the field. He was the senior producer of the show, which actually did record numbers. Um, And so he's overseeing the entire show. He's writing the show. He's working with editors. And there's a whole big team there that we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the process of putting together 
a show like PBC Fight Camp. And we're going to talk about the fight. Eric was in the arena. Um, he was shooting footage with with Wilder, with Ortiz. We're going to talk to him about his, his impressions from being there. We're going to break down the fight. We're going to talk about what's next for Deontay Wilder. So you do not want to miss that. So without further ado, let's get to the first guest. He is the WBC heavyweight champion of the world. He's also now in rare air, and he defended his belt 10-plus times as a heavyweight, and that's only been done by Klitschko, Lewis, Ali, and Holmes, right? So now he's he's joined that company of, of rare air. Um, he's obviously making a mark uh, on his sport through his spectacular knockout, through his charisma, and he's becoming must-see TV. So I spoke to Deontay Wilder last week before the fight. We, we talked about future matchups, like I said. We, we talked about uh, a bunch of different things you're going to want to hear uh, from the heavyweight champion Deontay Wilder. So let's get to that interview. I am Karen Bhatia. And let's ask the experts. I am Karen Bhatia. I am speaking with heavyweight champion of the world, Deontay Wilder. Deontay, great to speak with you, and we know that you have a big fight coming up against Luis Ortiz, the rematch, of course. Now, in the past, I know you've said when you fight someone, they're never the same, and obviously, in your rematch against Stavern, you showed that. You knocked him out in the first round. So, with Ortiz, is it the same thing? You know, he's not going to be the same after you knocked him out last time. Does that mean you'll knock him out even sooner this time? It's a possibility. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a big possibility that can happen. You know, um, like I said before, and I stand by my statement um, that no no guy is the, is the same after I hit them. You know, and I know that to be true. Uh, you know, with Cephas, uh, with my own eyes of seeing it, you know, unfold. So we're gonna see what happens. You know, one thing he uh, it's a couple of things he had going for him, but one thing for sure that he's a well experienced fighter, and um, he should know what what to do in certain situations. You know. And uh, he's gonna be as good. He's gonna be. He's gonna last as long as as I allow him to last, especially when I hit him. Once I start hitting him and being accurate with my right hand on left hook, then it's gonna it's gonna be a short night. And we know that you survived the seventh round, of course, and then went came back to knock him out in the in the tenth round. So I'm sure you're looking to capitalize on on what you found there. So I wanted to ask you now. It's, it's a tough question for me to ask, but you know, we've had uh, about five deaths this year in boxing. And I know that you've said in the past that you've wanted a body on your record. I'm, I'm just curious, do you still feel that way after, you know, these tragedies in the sport? I mean, you know, my mindset is never, would never change. You know, I am who I am. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, of course, I always want all fighters to go back home. You know, uh, after a competition, especially after we release our energies in the ring amongst each other, it's no greater feeling than two fighters, you know, putting our life on the line for others. And in the end, we are able to go back to our family. But it's, always, it's also a, a, a mindset with like, what you want to, you know, apply as much pain, you know, to your, your opponent as possible. And we, these happens, you know, and you know, with the bronze bomber, you know, you know they're trying to do the same thing to me, you know, and uh, we, we all wish each other well at the end of the day, you know, we never want anything tragic to happen, uh, but you know, it, it, you know, the sport, 
and brings a lot of things. No, it certainly does, and and I understand your viewpoint there. So. I have to ask you, you're obviously going to be an interested observer uh, come December when Anthony Joshua takes on Andy Ruiz in the rematch. I, I'd love to know, what is, what is your prediction of, of that rematch? How, how do you think that one's going to play out? Um, I think Ruiz is going to come out on top. You know, I really don't think, you know, Joshua did understood how they lost. You know, Ruiz have so much going for him. You know, and, and even leading up into the uh, second fight, he had a lot going for him in the first fight because of the disturbance and all the things that was going on, the the, the, the rumors and him having to have a sports psychologist, you know, um, uh, him panicking before it time to come out and him getting dropped four times. Like, that was that was a lot. Right. And it's going to be a lot to just really be able to focus and get all that uh, negative garbage out of your mind, you right. know, and um, so, and then you got Ruiz, he coming, you know, like he didn't have nothing to lose because he didn't come with nothing. Now he have something to lose. I think that he knew, you know, when you when you defeat a champion, especially when you make him quit and give up and you that champion got to come back in and fight that same guy that made me quit, you, you're going to be fighting your own demons. And if Ruiz execute all those Logics that that uh, that that surrounds this fight, man. You know, he he's gonna come out top easy. It's gonna be easier than he did the first time. You know, but um, it's an interesting fight, and you know, we're gonna see what happens. I can say anything. You know, he can Joshua can overcome all that. It's totally up him at the end of the day, and also you know, it's gonna be important who the people he have around him to motivate him and keep him up. You know, um, at the end of the day, I think it's gonna be a great fight and. I wish those guys nothing but the best, both of them. Right, and, and we'll see what adjustments Joshua is able to make, just like you said. Now, in that first fight that they had back in June, um, obviously you and Joshua had been going back and forth for a long time in terms of negotiations and, and trying to figure it out, and, and that was the fight everyone wanted to see. When you saw Ruiz knock out Joshua the first time and you were watching that, what was your immediate reaction to seeing that? I mean, I was happy for Ruiz, you know, um, you you talking about a fighter that was getting evicted from his 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 his, his apartment, you know what I mean? That was you talking about a fighter that you know, that was dealing with a lot at that moment in time, you know, um going through the struggles in his career, you know, and now he was being able to be blessed with an opportunity to get out of his contract where his promoter held him up and able to fight for a world title. Now that's 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 a blessing. That's why he all our lessons every time he talking and, and saying like 20, 20 times every time. I mean, because it really is truly a blessing, you know, to be damn near evicted by to be homeless on the street. And, you know, uh, so I was very happy for him. And then some words that he said, he, he looked in the camera, he said, he said, Mama, we don't have to struggle no more. And that really touched me as well because I understand. I come from an environment of the struggle, you know, and um, I was, a, a, you know, I was one that overcame different struggles in life, what we can overcome. You know, some do and some don't. And, you know, that really hit me, you know, to be where I came from and where I am now, you know, and that, that was really good.
And, and we know that you've overcome adversity as well. And now, of course, heavyweight champion of the world. Ruiz on the other end with, with the other three belts. So the, the head of Fox Sports came out recently and said they want to create a PBC belt. And he said, you know, one day we could imagine uh, Andy Ruiz versus Deontay Wilder for the PBC belt. Now, I know that you said you weren't interested in the WBC's franchise belt, right? You, you didn't want that. Now, would you be interested in the PBC belt? Hey, man, that's, you know... Uh, the PBC belt is is of of, of interest. You know what I mean? Um, I didn't like the franchise belt because of what it represented. You know, not fighting mandatories and stuff like that. But it, but we had to look for the more into it though. The, the PBC belt, what it offers, and what is it talking about? You know, one main thing that a lot of fighters would like about it: is no sanctioning fees. You know, what I mean, that's a big that's a big thing and. In, in the sport, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of us, you know, we look into how much money we have to give up in sanctioning fees, you know, and we look at that money as, man, we can do so much money, so much with that money with our kids, because like you said, you know, I know of three fighters that lost their lives this year, you know, I mean, you said five, but I only know three, um, but, you know, just to talk about losing a life, man, I mean, if this, you know, just think about the money that, like a champion, if he loses, like anybody fighting for a, a belt and defending that title, what did we do? Pass away, you know. All that money is gonna be needed towards the family, funeral, and all that different things and whatever. You know, not to talk up something like it, but you know, just looking in theory of certain things, like you know, and um, if you don't have no sanctioning fees, a lot of people are gonna be interested in that because that's gonna be something different. You know, then all these organizations, a lot of people make belts so they can have more sanctioning fees and, and different things like that. And you get a belt that come in that don't have no sanctioning fees. And over time, it could it could, it could have the same sentimental value as the rest of them. Then it's a no brainer. It, it is. And, and if they are able to work that out, we'll, we'll see what happens. It's obviously an interesting uh, some an interesting addition to, to what we have now. So I asked you about Joshua. I asked you about Ruiz. Of course, I also have to ask you about Tyson Fury. Um, I interviewed Jack Reese recently and he says he felt comfortable uh, with his count. Um, and I know that you, you've disagreed with that <laughs> at the same time. Uh, you know, Tyson Fury, he's been doing a lot of things. He, he had a couple fights and then he, he did a WWE fight. He's mentioned he wants to go into MMA and that's a lot before your potential rematch, which could be early next year. So what would be your, your reaction to, to Jack Reese and also any message to Tyson Fury that you may have? I mean, I mean, Jack, Jack Reese explained it all. He said he went off with the spirit of boxing and not the rules. You know what I mean? And that's not fair to me. You got one job. Your job is to fucking count to 10, not delay. If you go back and look at that fight, the first time I knocked Fury down, he, he count fast because he knew that he was going to get up. The second time, he he has, he has was very hesitant, you know, of counting very slow. What's supposed to be a one-second count turned into two seconds with one count, you know. Eight, nine, you know what I mean? All that theatrics and stuff like that standing over him, you know. He knew it was very slow, you know, but everybody was emotional and going off of this story that he has of mental illness. Welcome to America. A lot of us go through mental illness. A lot of us think about suicidal stuff, you know what I mean? That's nothing new here in America, but it's somehow when the uh, the Eastern Europeans come over here or anybody out of different countries come over here, somehow as Americans, we feel to have sympathy for this, this, this shit. 
And, you know, we have these problems, the same problem going each and every day, all the time. So we all, when we, we hear stories like that, everybody want, you know, you know, a good story to win. You know, especially get somebody like me that speaks his mind, that know who he is and know what he stands for and know what he represents, you know. But, you know, with Jack Reese, I feel like that he wanted him to he wanted him to win because of the story. That's why he went off the spirit and not the rules, you know, of whatever. But, you know, it is what it is. Um, I'm happy with myself. I can live with myself knowing that, you know, I knocked him out. I know that for facts. Fury know that. His family knows that. That's why he's doing all these different outside activities. That's why he didn't take the, the rematch instantly right. because I took some out of him. I'm not I'm knocked him on concussion, you know, into a concussion. You know, um seeing him on the floor like that, any any ref would have came away that off the way his neck was stretched and his eyes was in the back of his head. But it's only make it's only made good meat for the next um it's gonna make good meat until the next time we meet, you know, and that's gonna be the rematch. And I'm gonna prove even more that he should have been counted out. So I'm gonna make sure that damage that I done the first time is gonna be a continuous on the second time. And he really is gonna get hurt. No, we cannot wait for that rematch versus Tyson Fury next year. Before that, of course, you have the rematch with Luis Ortiz. It's on November 23rd. It's on Fox pay-per-view. You definitely do not want to miss that. Deontay, before I let you go, I have to ask you, can I get a bomb squad? <laughs> bomb squad! <laughs> Deontay Wilder, heavyweight champion of the world. Thank you so much for the time and best of luck in your rematch against Luis Ortiz on November 23rd. Oh man, thank you so much and blessings. Thank Next you. Time. Peace. That was the heavyweight champion of the world, the WBC heavyweight champion, I should say, because we know Ruiz is out there. Uh, with the three other belts, and he's got his rematch with Anthony Joshua coming up. But the WBC heavyweight champion of the world, Deontay Wilder, he always has the spectacular knockout. He actually improved his knockout percentage from 95.2 to 95.3 with this most recent performance. But we know looming is the big fight with Tyson Fury that we all want to see. So that was Wilder before the fight, uh, before his rematch with Ortiz. And I wanted to get some fresh reaction, talk to someone in the inner circle. So I, I don't think there's anyone even more in the inner circle than Christopher Bates. He's the personal bodyguard. He's security. He's calls himself a brother to Deontay Wilder. And they're obviously very close. And I wanted to get Chris's perspective of the win over Ortiz. I wanted to ask him about what's next with Fury, about what does his camp feel about Anthony Joshua. There was a lot of back and forth there in negotiations um, before they were able to... Uh, they were trying to negotiate their fight and they weren't able to do it. So um, what are his thoughts on Anthony Joshua? There's also the incident with BJ Saunders. If you remember, BJ Saunders came up to uh, Deontay Wilder at Nando's Chicken Restaurant and uh, there was a confrontation. Uh, BJ threw a, um, a piece of chicken and Chris Bates actually had to chase Billy Joe Saunders out of the Nando's. I wanted to ask him about what was exactly uh, going on there. So Without further ado, here is my conversation with the personal bodyguard, the personal assistant. He provides security for Deontay Wilder. It's Christopher Bates. 
I am Karan Bhatia. I am speaking with Christopher Bates. He's the bodyguard. He's a personal assistant with for Deontay Wilder. So, Chris, could you just tell us a little bit about your role uh, with Deontay? You're obviously very close with him. We always see you uh, standing behind him. What, what's your role in camp? In camp, my role is the everyday role of just organize, organizing everything for him. Uh, his day-to-day schedule, uh, where he needs to be, what time he needs to be there, uh, interviews, and just everything just day-to-day for him and protecting him along the way. And what is your your background? I've seen videos of you online where you're in the boxing ring, so I know that you've, you've trained in boxing. I, I read that you actually used to spar with Deontay, so are you a, a boxer by training? I just trained as boxing, as for other sports, um, but I fell in love with it as far as just training point, as far as um, keeping my weight down and just, just make sure I stay in shape and just another form of another form of training to help with other sports as far as football, especially with my hands. And I'm going to ask you what I think may be the obvious question or, or what people may say, I think. Deontay Wilder is the baddest man on the planet, as we know. The question would be, why does he need a bodyguard? <laughs> <laughs> that is a, that's a question that I often get asked. And you know, but you know, everybody needs somebody to watch their six and uh, I'm honored to watch my brother six. And we've seen in press conferences um, where you you actually literally stand right behind him. Um, is that an agreement that, that you guys have that he kind of wants you to always be behind him, have his back? Uh, it's just really a feel thing on my part. Uh, sometimes he, he's requesting me to be certain positions, uh, to be in certain positions. And other times it's just a feel thing on my part as far as like how, how I feel and what I feel as far as where we are located and people in the crowd, tension, just just different things that's going on around me. And I've heard you say before that the crew is not an entourage, it's a family. So obviously you're very close with Deontay. What, what is the group like w- with Deontay? Uh, we're a brotherhood. Uh, we're not an entourage. Uh, we're not people that hang out with each other only for fight time purposes. We're a brotherhood. Uh, we speak to each other every day. Uh, we tell each other we love each other, and we ask, we mean it. Um, these are people that are in my life or that are closer to me than 90% of my family, per se, I would say. But so this is a family. This is a family. And like he always says, uh, we come in peace. Uh, we don't want to bother anybody. Our energy is always great. Uh, we want the best for everybody. Uh, we're loving people, but... Hey, we don't want anyone to disturb our peace as well. So, and once you disturb our peace, then, hey, it's on you. And that's going to be your job at those times when there is a disturbance in the peace for you to kind of step in and calm things down. When we had the buildup for Wilder versus Fury, obviously there was great trash talk between the guys. Then a photo emerged online, and it seemed like the you know Wilder and Fury were backstage, and and they seemed buddy buddy. So I'm just curious, can you give us a peek behind the curtain? Do do these guys like each other? Are they friendly? Is the trash talk more of an act, or do they not like each other? Nothing Deontay does is an act. I mean, he cannot dis- he can dislike you and still be cordial with you. Mm-hmm. The energy will still be good, but nothing he does is an act. Nothing none of us does individually is an act. So. You know, he can be cordial with him. He knows what time was on the line. He knows he's going to get him on February 22nd. And then he won't be cordial at all. 
and then all hell gonna break loose. So we can be cordial until then. So we know that Deontay is is a very genuine person. The the other incident, of course, I have to ask you about was at a Nando's restaurant where Billy Joe Saunders came up to Deontay. There was an altercation, some remarks made, and then there was a video where you had to chase Billy Joe Saunders. So let me ask it this way: Did did you catch him? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. And were you just kind of going out there to just have surveillance and make sure he had left the area? Oh, no, I was dead ass serious. I was trying to catch him. And has that, is there bad blood still there? Has that situation ever been resolved, or was that kind of the last of it between Wilder and, and your team and, and Billy Joe Saunders' team? I mean, no, we're cool. Everybody's cool. Everybody's all right. So I wanted to talk to you about the fight that we just had, the spectacular knockout win for Deontay Wilder against Luis Ortiz in the, in the rematch. Wilder was losing the fight on the scorecards. Um, Ortiz actually outlanded him in total 35 to 34, but it was that 34th punch that Wilder landed. So you're obviously close to Deontay. You, I'm sure you're clued in on the game plan. Was that was that the game plan to, to time Ortiz to find the distance and then eventually land the, the big big shot? Well, Ortiz is a southpaw, so you, you can't rush with a southpaw. And he's a very skilled southpaw coming from his Cuban background of, well, he said 500-some-odd fights and things like that. So, uh, I mean, of course, we were going to be very patient with him and, and pick out shots of – my brother never throws. He doesn't waste punches. Uh, you know, he, he doesn't waste punches. He said everything, everything that he does is to set something up. It doesn't matter if, you know, he, he may lose a round or two or, or in your guys' eyes, he may lose a round or two. Um, but everything is to set up something. And, and when he sets that up, you see the end result. And he he was obviously timing uh, Ortiz, finding the distance. He he blinded him with the left and then came over the top with the right. Um, he, he was losing the, the fight on the scorecards, on the official judges' scorecards. So d- at, when you're watching, is any part of you nervous at all and saying, oh, wait a minute, these are close rounds? Or do you kind of know this is the game plan and, and, and you're not nervous at all? I know the game plan, so I'm not nervous on, from that point of view. I'm, I'm always, um, just because he's my brother and I love him, I'm always, I mean, I know when your life is on the line, you know, when, to be honest, when your life on the line, shit hit different. You know what I'm saying? And, and cause, of course, I know where that comes from, and I know where he comes from when he says that. So from that standpoint, I'm always a little nervous, uneasy, but I know he's the best in the world. I know he's going to always come out on top. You know, and at the end of the day, I know all his defensive skills, you know, he never he get he doesn't get hit anyway. You know, it's rather he gets hit. So but he doesn't get credit for any of that anyway. So but I know that his defensive skills are up to par with anyone. So he doesn't get hit that cleanly. So if any. So I, I trust him in the ring. So. And he certainly gets credit for, for a brilliant performance because he actually was setting the trap for or Sean Porter said that on the broadcast he said well I think Wilder's setting the trap and he was setting the trap and he did that beautifully so now that that we've had a moment to look back at the fight you know Wilder's knockout percentage it's gone up now from 95.2 to 95.3 percent um he's defended the heavyweight belt 10 times and that puts him in rare air here with the with the likes of Ali Holmes Lewis and Klitschko 
that that's you know that's a great company to be in so you've been with Deontay for a long time did you know that he was going to be able to achieve these type of, of records and these type of things in the sport I mean we believed in each other I believed in him as far as what he was going to do uh when I first met him, I, I, it was the energy was all over him as far as I believe in what I'm doing. I know I'm going to be great, and I believe in him, in, in him as well. And he, he kept winning. He kept knocking people out. You know, whoever they stepped in front of him, they all, they've they always said he, he wasn't going to be able to do this. But we believed in each other. He believed in himself first. And so we always knew greatness was going to come. We didn't know when it was going to come, but we knew it was going to come because people failed to remember that Back when he was a contender, people still wouldn't fight him then. They wouldn't fight him then. And they don't want to fight him now. So, And he's definitely one of the most avoided fighters in the sport. Um, after the fight, we saw you get in the ring. You're, you're with Deontay. You guys are kind of jumping. You're dancing. You're singing. So take me through that moment. What, what were you guys saying? What, what was happening there? <laughs> oh, man, that was... Uh... That was a, just a, a joyous moment uh, that you guys were able to catch. Uh, we were chanting. Uh, he, he started saying it. Uh, it only takes one. It only takes one, and that's just that's that's pure happiness. Pure happiness that is over, and we're victorious again. And we don't take these moments for granted. You know, we don't we don't take them for granted. Uh, and then uh, we also know the work that goes into it. A lot of people don't know the work that actually goes into. It. You know, him being in the ring and the things he does in the background. All they, they think that he's just going to go in the ring and knock somebody out. They don't know what he actually goes into from day to day. And uh, he doesn't get enough credit for what he actually goes through on a day-to-day -day basis to be able to come out and perform at that high of a level against elite competition. Because we know every time somebody fights him, they, they are in the best shape of their lives when they come to fight him. And we we know that most likely next is Tyson Fury in February twenty second on February twenty second, like you said. So let me ask you this: Fury in the first fight, we know he was able to move around a lot. Deontay eventually caught him in the ninth round, and then of course in the twelfth round, where Fury barely got up, but he did beat the count. How is your team looking at that rematch? Because Fury is someone that can move. Um, and it may be difficult for De for Deontay to, to to catch him. So, how is your team looking at that rematch? Well, I can't speak for everybody on the team. I can only speak as far as from my standpoint. And we're gonna look at it like no other fight. It's the same as same as the last fight. And we we know who we're fighting. Deontay has fought him before. Right. He knows right. what to do. He's the baddest he's the baddest motherfucker on the planet. So he knows what to do. He know what he did last time. He's in his mind. We all know what he does in rematches. So Tyson ain't going to be no different. He's spelled it before. That's why we're taking this long to do the rematch. He knows the inevitable is going to happen. So, And we, we know what Wilder does in rematches. Like you said, he took on Stavern the first time and went the distance in the rematch. Wilder knocked him out in the first round. Now with Ortiz, it was the 10th round the first time. Now it's the 7th. So he has success in rematches. We, we know that. So you as an interested observer, we have the Ruiz versus Joshua rematch coming up. 
And I'm just curious, you know, obviously one of those guys could be a pe- potential future opponent for, for Deontay. What is your take on that fight? How do you see that fight playing out? Ruiz versus Joshua, the rematch. I think Andy's going to get the same result. I think Andy's going to knock him out again. Uh, I think I think that Joshua, I, I think that he doesn't know really how to, he, he doesn't know how he lost the first fight. He doesn't know how he lost the first fight. Um, I don't think that, it, I just, in any sport, <clears throat> it, can, it can relate to any, any sport. So your mind, in his mind, I don't care what they say, he can lose weight, he can get another trainer. He got knocked down four times. Right. Four times. Four times against a guy that they didn't take serious. Right. They didn't take him serious. They thought that he was just going to roll over and they didn't know that he can actually fight. That he arguably won that belt against Joseph Parker. They didn't know that. Right? They didn't know that. Joshua can't handle combination punchers or anything of that nature. Uh, He still doesn't use his jab. I've never seen him carry a fight with his jab. Uh, That's not talking negatively about him, period. Uh, Just speaking facts. I've never seen him carry uh, a fight with his jab, right? He doesn't keep distance well, and he gets hit with the two easy, one too easy down 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 the middle every time. And we know that Andy has taken his best shot, and that's in his head as well. So you took my best shot and you got to knock me down four times. That's in his head. He can lose weight and do what he want to do. Still in his head. And it is it is the question of, of who can make the adjustments and, and both guys. Uh, well, like you said, Andy, Andy's definitely going to be in, in Joshua's head and he's he's had this six-month period to try to make adjustments. So we'll see what happens. So your team, Deontay, and Joshua went back and forth many times in terms of us trying to get that mega fight. I know that Joshua said Wilder needs to know his place, and I know that you didn't appreciate those comments. Now that the tables are kind of turned and Joshua's stock is down a little bit, how, how do you feel about Anthony Joshua personally? Do you not like him personally? Nah, I man, I don't have anything against anyone personally. It's always business with me. It's always business with me until you make it personal. Until you make it personal. But, you know, Joshua knows his place now, I see. But we're not worried about Joshua, where he what he has going on. But like my brother said a long time ago, we smoked him out. We smoked him out, and we see. But we know one thing. We, we're hoping that, that Andy wins those belts because we know if Joshua gets those belts, Ain't no way in hell he coming over here to fight us. We know. We know. And so is that is that the final plans? Because we know that Wilder Fury tentatively scheduled for February 22nd. If Wilder can get past Fury in the rematch, would he would he be willing? Would Wilder be willing to fight the winner of of Ruiz Joshua for all the belts at that point? I mean, when we get past Tyson. Sorry, excuse me. Yeah, when, when he gets past Fury, would he be willing to fight the winner of, of Ruiz Joshua? And then we would have the lineal championship at stake and all four belts in, in one match, which would be great for boxing fans. Is, is that the plan? I think you already know the answer to that. You know he going to fight anybody, anywhere. The question is, 
will they be willing to fight him? That's always the question. We always ready to fight. We never been scared of nobody. We ain't running from nobody. And y'all already know the answer. Well, as boxing fans, I definitely hope that that happens. Obviously, before now, before then is Wilder Fury rematch, rematch in February. We have the Ruiz-Joshua fight coming up. So just to close it out, you guys had the, had the big win over Ortiz. What was this celebration like? What is, what is this week going to be like? What's, what's the plan now with you and Deontay? <laughs> uh, the celebration was we went downstairs and got some pizza in the food court like we normally do. We got something to eat and spend time with the family. <laughs> um, we're business as usual. He's going to spend time with the fam uh, and relax for a minute and and get back in camp. Take some. He's going to get some time to himself and he's going to get back in camp. You know, he's already in shape, so he's just going to flow right into the next camp and you'll see what's going on. You'll see the end result on February 22nd. We will, and Deontay brought that up on Saturday night. He said, I'm already in shape, so I'm going to put shape on top of shape. I can't wait to see that rematch. Christopher Bates, I want to thank you so much for the time. Uh, thank you for, for sharing some insight of being in Deontay Wilder's inner circle, and best of luck to you and your team uh, as you prepare for the rematch with Tyson Fury. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored. Thank you so much. My thanks to Christopher Bates for giving us some time, giving us a peek into what it's like to be in Deontay Wilder's inner circle. So obviously we know that Team Wilder is preparing for their rematch with Tyson Fury. Now, a lot of uh, eyeballs were on the first fight in the 12th round. Wilder knocked down Fury. Uh, Fury seemed like he was out, but he did get up before the count of 10. And I'm going to talk to the man who was counting him, and that's Jack Reese. So I've been speaking with Jack Reese, and he wants to make a couple points about uh, refereeing, especially when there's a knockdown. So first of all, the the count starts as soon as the fighter touches the canvas when, you, when the referee says one. And the count doesn't end uh, until the referee finishes saying the word 10. Even if, if the guy gets up during the time that the referee is saying 10, he's not knocked out until the referee finishes saying the word 10. So that, that's important, especially on these close calls uh, like, like the one uh, that we're talking about. So the other part of it is that when a fighter is getting up, uh, when no part of his body other than the soles of his feet are touching the ground, he is no longer considered down. So what does that mean? That means sometimes you kind of see a fighter struggling to get up, but as long as it's it's, it's only their shoes, their, their feet that are on the ground, the rest of their body, they may still be kind of rising up, but they're actually up at that point. As long as it's just the bottom of their, their soles that are on the, the canvas, they're up. Um, so th that also plays a part into it, right? Because you might have a guy who's kind of hunched over and slowly rising, uh, you know, raising his back up, but he's actually up in, in that point, and you, you're not supposed to wave it off there um, if you're trying to do a true 10 count. So those are some notes from Jack Reese. Um, we're obviously going to get into that fight. We also talked a lot about uh, the Logan Paul KSI fight and all the, the decisions he made there. Um, he was able to break it down. So, without further ado, here is my conversation with veteran referee, Jack Reese. I am Karin Bhatia. This is Ask the Experts. Lucky enough to be speaking with referee Jack Reese. 
Jack, you've been doing this for nearly two decades. You've you've been uh, a referee for some of the biggest boxing matches uh, in in boxing history. So, when you first heard, you had the assignment of two YouTubers, KSI and Logan Paul. They're gonna have their rematch, and you had the assignment. What was going through your head? Well, well, honestly, well, first, first of all, good morning. And uh, regarding the fight, honestly, I didn't even know who they were. My commissioner um, sent me a video and said, hey, you got these two guys that are pretty big, have a lot of followings. And, um, you know, take a look. Would you do this fight? Would you ref it? And I thought he meant, would I ref it? Do they have enough skills? Is it, is it a fight that you could make or are these guys going to get hurt? So I took a look at it. I said, no, they've got skills. I'd ref that any day of the week. Little did I know who they were and that the fact that they really wanted me to, he wanted me to do the fight. So that's initially what happened. And when did you realize that this was more than just two guys making their pro debut, right? This was an event. Um, if you look at the arena, I mean, Justin Bieber's there. there. There's so many celebrities there. When did you realize, whoa, wait a minute, this is going to be an event? Um, uh, you know, about a month into it, uh, they really stressed to me the importance of me doing the fight because initially I had another, uh, I had a wedding to go to and, um, they, uh, convinced me that I needed to do the fight and I said, okay. And stuff like that. And let me tell you something, uh, you know, how you said Justin Bieber was there and it's an event. Yes. Um, when I climbed into the ring to actually do the fight, you know, I put my towel down, I looked into the audience and I thought I had slipped back in time 20 years and I was at the Staples Center at a Backstreet Boys concert <laughs> with my kids. It was all mothers and children and, you know, families. Their following is that, you know, that demographic of between 9 and 25 and that's what you saw there. And I thought it was fantastic because these are all future boxing fans, current and future, box, future boxing fans. So I thought this is wonderful. This is great. Absolutely. I, I've been saying I think it's a definitely a good thing for the sport. I mean, if you look at Great. the YouTube highlights of the fight, it has 11 million views. Um, Eddie, wow. Eddie Hearn came out and said it was the most watched live fight on The Zone ever. So I don't think having more eyeballs is, is ever a bad thing. So coming into this, obviously, you go into the fighters' locker rooms and you're giving your instructions. Now, the instructions must be different, right, when it's two guys making their, their pro debut. Well, it was a professional fight, and so I gave them the, the normal instructions on how to conduct themselves. And, and let me say this. When I go in to give instructions, it's not a rules meeting. Right. It's just what I expect of them, and more importantly, what they can expect of me, what I'm going to say, what that means. You know, like on a break, they don't – like uh, I'll give you a quick example. If they get tied up, I don't, I don't rush in and break them. I say work out of it. Let, your hand, let them go. Uh, your hands are free. Free up your hands so they can work out of the clinch. And they would understand that just because they hear me talking doesn't mean they have to stop fighting. Because if one guy stopped and the other guy didn't, it would create, you know, um, a dangerous situation. So I told them, protect yourself at all times. You never have to stop fighting until you hear me say the word stop. And, and uh, obviously you need to be a little bit more specific with these type of guys because they are making their pro debut. They're not used to having a professional referee speaking to them a as they fight. So let's talk about the fight. Um, er, first couple rounds, it's kind of what we thought would happen. It was, it was uh, pretty, pretty evenly matched, but there were some wide punches, a little bit of, a little bit of sloppiness. And then, of course, the third round, uh, KSI lands the, the overhand right behind the ear uh, of Logan Paul. Logan Paul goes down, but you decided to call it a slip. So why did you decide to call that a slip there? 
Well, I want to say two things. First of all, it was I. It's not that I called it a slip. I waved it off. I said no knockdown, yep. and the reason is he threw a punch that couldn't that couldn't land in a legal area. Oh, well, let me say it this way: If I'm going to punch you in the face with a straight punch, I, there's no way I could hit you in the back of the head unless you turn your head. In this case, he was throwing punches from left field, and they were almost slapping with the with the you know, palm and a glove because of his inexperience. And that punch clearly hit behind the ear to where the only thing that was touching the ear was a, a little part of the thumb. So, and it also hit his shoulder and it ended up behind his head. So it more and more like cupped him and pulled him down. So I decided not to call it a, a knockdown because it wasn't a legitimate punch. And do you stand by that, you know, after seeing the replay and after kind of hearing what other people are saying, you, you, you feel confident in that call, right? Absolutely. Listen, you know, with all due respect, uh, the people who are involved with boxing, you know, are, are praising me for being able to see that and let it register in the computer and make the call so quick. Let, let me just say this. Yeah. These guys, I think you understated something a little bit. Sure. And I want to just explain it to you yeah i give these first of all i give these guys both of them the utmost respect they got mad respect for both of them these two these two young kids handled themselves in the most dignified manner you know they were giving each other the bad mouth and the lip talking but they handled themselves under the pressure that they were under incredibly for their age unbelievable and they did they did um interviews all day long, the day before, the day of, they should have been rested in their hotel room and they're out doing interviews to try to, you know, do the right thing for the fans. And, you know, I, I give them nothing but mad respect. On the other side, they really didn't have a boxing background. So as soon as the pressure hit them, they got tired right. or it, whatever. It, got, it turned into like a, like a tough man competition or a police and fire type fighting when they do the battle of the badges. There really wasn't a big demonstration of skills, boxing skills. But that's not to take away from the fact that these two guys are extremely tough. They both had heart. And I don't think people understand what, they were confronted with and the pressure that they faced and they handled it beautifully. 100%. I've been saying this for a while that they've actually earned the right to have that audience, right? Through the work of, of, of engaging fans, of building content, right? They, they've earned that. Um, so I, I certainly, totally. Um, they totally deserve that platform. And, and I agree with you, though, that as the fight, you know, as you get into a fight, you're, you really want to knock your guy out. You, your punches may start getting wider coming from different places. So just with the last part about the, the knockdown, um, you... You rule. You you uh, said it wasn't a knockdown. You said it was a slip. Um, you called off the knockdown. Now on the broadcast, I, I'd have to ask you. Steve Smoger was the the unofficial rules expert, and he said that he would have called that a knockdown. What what would be your response to Steve Smoger? You know, uh, if anyone who knows Steve Smoger will tell you he's a selfless self promoter, and if if he's gonna throw another ref under the bus, which he last week he did to Robert Hoyle with the things he said. To promote himself, he's got to live with himself. And I really can't – I don't get upset with right. what you know the commentators say. You got to understand, he's trying to promote his next assignment. He's He doesn't – you know what I mean? So I take it with a grain of salt. I wish you would ask other people what they thought. I, like I said, I'm getting praised because that happens like this. And to be able to see it, interpret it, and call it in a second, it's not easy. 
No, no, 100%. And we also have, we're able to watch it on, on slow motion replay. We're able to look at it a thousand times and make judgments. You have to make a call just like that. And, and, uh, and that's obviously much, much tougher to do. Um, so as, as the fight continued, of course, we go into the fourth round. And this was probably the turning point uh, for the fight in many ways. So Logan Paul lands the uppercut. But then he grabs KSI's head. Lands another shot, and then as KSI is on the way down, he may have already been down. He 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 throws another shot as KSI is down. Now uh, we've seen you know uh, like famously with with the Roy Jones fight and other times where if a fighter hits someone uh, another fighter when they're down, they could be DQ'd right there. So here here's my question: Take us through that moment, and then tell me what was your thought process? What was going through your head? You know, that's that's the kind of question I like to hear because I can give you a, bit, a better picture of what I was faced with as well. And maybe the, the, the fans who don't understand boxing and all the people sending me, you know, these uh, these wonderful uh, negative texts, these young kids and stuff like that, they'll understand. Okay, I was faced with, I had a huge event. It was a large event. Yeah. But, I, but, it, but it really wasn't a professional boxing match. So one of my goals was to try to find, get it to its natural conclusion, uh, the best I could, you know, let them settle it between themselves. I didn't want to get involved at all. Right. And I, just so you guys know, I told them in the dressing room this, you know, I, I went over and I explained to them, this is how you, what you can expect and what I expect. And these are the things that are definitely, in, you know, you can't do. And I told them, do not hit a guy behind the head. Do not hit a guy in a kidney. If they turn their back, stop. Let me, I will be yelling, stop. Let me go in and warn them. In any weird positions, I'm going to immediately yell, stop, and let me untangle you guys and do not hit each other in the back of the head at that time. And out of all the fouls we have in boxing, that's the, that's the worst thing you could do is hit a guy behind the head and especially hit him when he's down if he's in trouble and he doesn't even have the ability to defend himself. And that's what happened. So in one hand, I had an egregious foul. and the other hand, I didn't want to I did not want to disqualify Logan. So what, what you guys saw I did was I'll go back into the specifics, but um, he uh, actually I'll walk you through. So yeah. Logan hit him with a beautiful right uppercut. Right. Clean shot. Clean shot. That staggered KSI. KSI was doing everything he possibly could to keep his balance and stay on his feet. Any legal shot after that, in my opinion, would have dropped him. But for some reason, Logan got caught up in the moment. I don't think it was maliciously intended. I thought it was he just his brain got away with himself. He was like in a street fight. And he grabbed him, he grabbed KSI with the left hand, held his head, and hit him with that second uppercut that really finished the job. And then I don't know if you've seen this, watch it slow motion. He hit him at, uh, he hit him on the way down in the back of the neck, and then he hit him when he was on the ground in the back of the neck. When he was on the ground in the back of the neck, KSI was just trying to just he had his hands on the floor, totally defenseless, just trying to keep up from slamming his face in the ground when he got hit with that shot. Totally egregious, the most dangerous thing you could do in boxing. So at that point, um, I, I initially waved off the knockdown because that's what I was going to do. I was going to say no knockdown. But then he had an insult to injury and hit him behind the head. So I had some choices to make, and I wanted to think about what I needed to do. And I also wanted to tend to KSI. So I called time. 
sent Logan to the neutral corner, got KSI up, and I'm telling you, my first goal was to make sure that KSI was okay, right. but that he was going to continue. Because if he said, I, I can't, I'm dizzy, I can't continue, it would have forced me to disqualify KSI, I mean, uh, Logan, I did not want to do that. I wanted to let this thing go to its natural conclusion. The fans came to see a fight. If KSI was okay, I'll take an action and we'll go forward. So I got him in the corner. I spoke to him. I got him up, which was a good sign. I spoke to him and I said, I need you to continue. Uh, you're okay. I'm going to give you some time to recover, packed up to you know, your full strength or whatever it is, that's part of leveling the playing field, okay? Because I had a hurt, a guy who was hurt that was damaged from an illegal blow. Now I want to let him rest to get back to where he was before those illegal blows to level the playing field. I did that, but I have to tell you, I wish I would have sent you the rules. Oh, I did. I sent you the rule. Anytime there's an illegal blow that causes an injury, I must take points or or worse. So in this case, I was compelled and I was uh, bound to take points. And what I did was I said, you know, if I take one point, it'll be 9-9, nine, nine, it'll be even. Uh, that was a goal. But I said, but you know, I, don't, I don't know if I'm making a strong enough statement. If I don't take any points and let and just let them recover, people are going to, you know, uh, my commission is going to say that was an egregious foul. You didn't represent the commission properly. Well, you, you're supposed to take points. And I said, you know what? I got f six rounds. If I wipe this round out by making it even, then whoever wins the, the five rounds, you know, three or, or more of the rounds will win the fight on the scorecards and it'll be fair. It'll be even. So I wanted to acknowledge that really hard uppercut that he threw that started this whole process so I decided to score the knockdown and then to make it even take away the two points to make it an 8-8 round it's it washes itself out now whoever wins the most rounds on the scorecards gets the decision certainly I'm trying to be fair I was trying to be fair no, certainly. And and we're all looking at this. We get to kind of revisit it, watch it a million times. You have to make a split second decision with two guys Thank in a you. ring. And Thank that's you. that's obviously very tough to do. And and you did send the rule. The California rule uh, says any um, boxer guilty of an intentional foul shall be penalized one or more points as determined by the referee. I believe that it says with injury. And, I and it says with injury. Right. And and so the question here, though, the, and, and I completely understand everything you're saying. May I say one more thing, too? Please, go ahead. The first part of the rule says any fighter injured by an intentional foul sh shall be allowed and given time to recover. Right. It and does. That's what yeah. Yep, exactly. So that is rule 338. That's point A and B that we, that we just talked about. So that's that's 100% in the rules. Now, here, here's my question, though. Um, and, that, and I completely understand what you're saying. And that makes a lot of sense. The judgment part of it for you uh, comes into deciding if you're going to take one point, two points or DQing him, right? And it is rare. Now, I've been in boxing for a long time. I know you have too. it is rare to take two points. And I understand completely why you did it here. Um, but was that if if you look back, if you were to change anything about that, is that something that you that you would look at maybe taking one point instead of two, or or you're comfortable with with the the decision that you made? If I had to change anything, I would have went to the wedding. <laughs> okay, because let me just say this: this was a no win situation for me. Yeah, uh, and I took it because it was going to be good for boxing. Right. Unless that fight 
came to a definitive conclusion, we were going to have controversy. And in fact, as you know, on you know, people want to see Canelo and Triple G. They get to see Canelo and Triple G, and what do we get? We get a close fight, and all you have is people arguing controversy. No, he won. No, he won. So I knew if it was going to be a close fight, it was going to be nothing but controversy, and it was. Would I listen? I'm going to tell you something. I'm human. I'm not perfect. No. But in the heat of battle, under pressure, my goal was to make sure that KSI was okay, that he was able to continue, and whatever I did was going to be fair and reasonable and good for both fighters and good for boxing. But I was bound. I had to take points. So I tried to make it neutral and offset itself so it was balanced and it wouldn't have – and it didn't make a difference. If I took – uh, if I didn't call it a knockdown and then I took a point, then it would have been a nine-nine round. Same thing. But then I didn't address. Then I didn't address the uppercut. The uppercut and the yeah. knockdown. Yeah. So in a heated battle in the spur of the moment, that's what I did, and and I stand by it. I can't. I can't change it. <laughs> and no, no, one hundred percent. And and I want to talk about some of the great fights that that you've refed. And, and so just to kind of wrap up th this moment, and then we can and move on. So. Uh, just, I just wanted to confirm one more thing you said. If there was no knockdown, right? Let's say there were in there were intentional fouls similar to uh, hitting behind the head or maybe hitting someone on the way down, but but let's say there just somehow happened to not be a knockdown. It probably only would have been one point, but because of the knockdown, that's what kind of caused the extra point there. No, it's it was a consideration, but right. there were three things that he did illegal after that punch. And I, I could, I'm not saying I would have ever done it three yeah. points, but but two points was totally justified. And you got to look at the whole gravity of it. And let me say this to you too, sure. and the fans need to understand this. Absolutely. I didn't know what the scores were at the time. Right. I was just trying to even out that round. And then whatever happened in the next two rounds, either one of them had an opportunity to win. And I didn't know what the scores were, so let it be. It just turned out it was a very close fight, and so, you know, that's the focus right now. Oh, 100%. Anytime that there's a lot of eyeballs on a fight, we, we know this. It's the referee, the judges, whoever uh, is involved. Are gonna, are, there's going to be people online on Twitter saying this and that. So um, the, the, the last question about this topic, and then let's, let's definitely move on. That's, um, what you said, that's what you said on the last question. This is, this is, the, this, this <laughs> is the last, last question. I'm uh, kidding, on I'm this, kidding. Is, so I, I talked to uh, Lee Groves, who's a great researcher. He works for CompuBox. And I, I was trying to think about this myself, too, is like we know that a two-point deduction is rare in boxing. And the only time that, that Lee Groves could come up with, um, you know, with, with, a, with a quick uh, quick research was when Mike Tyson, bit the first time he bit the ear off of Vander Holyfield, uh, Mills Lane, instead of disqualifying, took off two points. Um, there was one more time I believe he was able to find. Have you ever in, – in, you know, you've been refing for almost two decades – has there ever been no, another over time two, that over two decades, over, over two, two decades, decades, even better. So box rec, box rec doesn't have the early stages. They weren't in existence when we first started. So you've, you've been predating box rec, which is amazing. Yes. So have you, it means I'm old, man. It means I'm old. <laughs> have you in your, your history, your great history of, of refereeing, has there been another time that you remember calling a two point deduction? A absolutely. On multiple occasions, but I'm going to tell you something very interesting about me. 22 years, I've never disqualified a fighter. I do everything I possibly can to let the two guys or girls settle it between themselves, let it come to a natural conclusion, because that's what's best for boxing. And I, I would encourage you to take a look at other referees who have disqualified multiple people. And the difference is, 
I, I want you guys to understand this. I don't try to, I don't try to be right. I don't have to be right. Right. In fact, if, if my commission, if Logan, I encourage him, if Logan protests this and brings it to my commission and they look at this on the big screen and they find that Jack was egregious in his judgment and they overturn it, I'm happy. I want the guy who won to win and lose to lose. And if I've made a mistake, I'll raise my hand and say I've made a mistake. But I don't have to be right. There are other officials that have to be right. I just want to do what's right. And that's why I've never had to um, disqualify anybody. 100%. And, and I know I said I was moving on, but I just remembered I forgot to ask you one last thing. The, the length of the fight, six rounds, right? So obviously, a, a, you know, a one point off, two point off, that can change it in a six round fight. But for you, your job, it should be it's in a vacuum, right? It doesn't matter if it's a four round, six round, eight round, 12 round fight, you have to make the call for that moment, right? You can't think about, oh, this is going to affect the scorecards because it's a shorter fight. When it comes to taking points and fouls and things like that, yeah. You're correct when it comes to damage. Um, I am thinking about how long is left in a fight, how much damage he's taken prior, and the amount of rounds and uh, where we are does matter, but not in the case of, of fouling. But the history of what was going on prior to matters to me. And just let me say this. Yeah. Both of those guys were fouling each other. And Logan Logan was concerned about a lot of things in the dressing room. He and Shannon addressed with me. And I went into KSI's dressing room and I addressed it with him just as I addressed things with Logan that I saw him do in the prior fights that wouldn't be acceptable. And I have to tell you, if this was dirty boxing, Logan was the dirtier boxer. He was He's a taller guy and he was... D- reaching over the top of KSI's head and getting him in like a guillotine. Right. And then he was throwing uppercuts when he had him in there. And it, and it was just, it turned into a street fight because of their lack of skills. But there was never a great effect with some of the shots that KSI hit him with. You know, they were standing up straight and they can't, you can't generate power when you're standing next to a guy and you're doing this. Your body's not behind it. So it was more of an annoyance and the optics didn't look good. But I just, you know, I kept warning KSI, get off his head. Don't do that stuff. And Logan's dirty tactics didn't really damage KSI until that other thing. Certainly, yeah. And and you can't hold someone's head and and, uh, and, and give them uppercuts or punches. That, that, if, that's that's your, if that's your son and those three things, four things happened to your son, well, you'd be going coming through the phone right now wanting to choke me if I didn't, <laughs> if I didn't do anything. And let me say this so yeah. to make people understand. In life, out in the street, and as well as in the ring, there's infractions, misdemeanors, and felonies. I was very judicious. I was, I feel I was letting all the misdemeanors and infractions go, giving them warnings. Just because I didn't stop the fight and say, don't do that. If you listen, you'll hear me saying, get off his head, knock that yep. off, keep it up. Okay. I was letting them go because of their the importance of this event and their lack of real boxing skills. I was just trying to let them to settle it. But what he did in that fourth round by holding his head and then the two punches on the way down and down, it was a felony and I couldn't ignore it. 100%. And if you go back and watch the broadcast, we can hear you. You're telling both guys to relax at points. You went up to Logan Paul very firmly and said, you can't do that shit. So you were, you were telling these guys exactly uh, what, what, what they could and couldn't do, and, and you had control in there. So the fight ends. KSI uh, wins on the scorecards. For you now, now that you've had a moment to kind of look back at what this whole thing was, 
was it different than you expected? Was it um, was it as an as a fight? Was it sloppier than you expected as an event? Was it bigger, smaller? Just when you look back now, what do you think? Great event. I'm extremely happy that Eddie Hearn had the foresight right. to do this. It's great for boxing. Uh, I'm, I'm sure he made money on it, but to get all these brand new eyes on boxing and get these future fans, you know, invested into our sport, I think it's wonderful. Yes, it was extremely sloppy. It was like the police fire Olympics or a tough man competition. They they lacked the real boxing skills. Look, how many how many real combinations did you see? You, not very many. It was one right. and out or one, two and out. I never saw any of them follow up with a nice hook. I, no, and there was opportunities where Logan hit KSI and he all you had to do was go like instead of just one, one, two, three, you know, but they didn't have that background. And I can't blame them because they, you know, with what they took this fight on, you know, with very little background, you know, how could they demonstrate those skills? But I give them all the props in the world. Unbelievable to put yourself out there in front of your family, friends, and in this case, all these fans that these people have. The pressure is enormous, enormous. And those two guys did it. I give them nothing but kudos. No, 100%. And and, what, and it was also a lot of pressure on you because one thing we say in boxing is that if you don't hear the referee's name mentioned, he's doing a good job, right? That means that he's staying out of the way and letting them fight. But the, the problem with this situation is exactly what you said, that we're dealing with two guys in their pro debut. They're, they're throwing punches from, from different planets. And that means that you're going to have to get involved to keep them safe. So it's it's overall, it's it's just a tough assignment. And I, and I think you handled it well. You mentioned that you got some negative texts and, and things like that. I'm just curious. Have you read anything online? Has there been any uh, backlash or any or any negative comments that you've seen about uh, said about you? Uh, just no. I'm just getting uh, negative stuff from some of Logan's, um, you know, fans and stuff like that. Look, th this comes with the territory today. The world is totally different than it was 20 years ago. Uh, you know, even I got to be honest with you. You heard me telling both of these guys relax because if a boxer gets touched behind the head. They don't start like stomping their feet and complaining to a referee. They go, hey, just they'll say to me, hey, keep them off my head. But these two guys were complaining like non-boxers. So I was just trying to make them relax and keep the flow going. And let me say this to you too. What I could I can handle anything that comes along with this. It goes with the territory. Right. Um no one ever said life was going to be fair. No one ever told me boxing was fair. Uh -huh. On the back of my birth certificate, there's no warranty that says life will be fair to me. So I'm not worried about it. I accept it. It comes with it. No, 100%. And, and uh, I'm glad that, that you were able to uh, referee this fight. And, and like I said, I, I, I personally think you did. A great job, and I appreciate you coming on to explain it. So I also, of course, you've, you've refereed so many fights, and, and the fact that I've, I'm getting to chat with you now, I always wanted to ask you, of course, uh, of the of the big moment between Deontay Wilder and Tyson Fury in their first fight. As we know, Wilder's basically losing the fight. He knocks down Fury in round nine, and then again in round 12. And round 12 uh, was, was the big right hand followed by the left hook as Fury's going down. You were the third man in the ring. So you had a vantage point that no one else on planet Earth had. When you saw Fury go down there, is there something that went, went off in your head that said, there's no way that this guy is getting up? Yes, but let me back up a second and tell sure. you this. When, when we're talking about Logan and KSI. Yeah. Great 
oppor- great opportunities create great memories and make great moments. Yep. And I knew that something great can come out of the Logan Paul KSI fight. It was one of the reasons I took it. I'm happy I took it. I'll take the negative criticism, whatever. I'm, you know, I, I'm okay with it. When it comes to Wilder and Fury, I've always, first of all, yes. When he got hit with those shots, I thought he was out. I thought he was done. Yeah. But I've always, I've always been taught to count a champion out. So it, it, I'm going to walk you through it, and if you watch the replay, you'll you'll see what I'm saying. Yeah. So he got hit with a right left combination, and he and I was about four to six feet away from them when this happened. I was in my zone where I was supposed to be because they were fighting, not fouling, and I was just staying on the outside, trying not to be noticed. You know. Right. And he got hit with a right-left combination, and he fell away from me. So the closest right. thing to me was his feet. He's barrel-chested. I couldn't see his face, and I wanted to, you know, give a champion a chance and count a champion out. So I turned to – Deontay started going to the neutral corner on his own. So I just kind of pushed my arm out, looked to the timekeeper real quick, and she said one to me. So in my head, I, I thought he was out, so I didn't go two, three, four – I, in my head, I was just going two, three, as I was walking in, totally expecting to see him with his eyes closed and out. But as I got closer and I started kneeling down, um, I hope you can see this, and I'll move it towards me. He was on the ground like this, and when I started coming down, he went like this. And he looked at me, and I said, oh, wow. He's, you know, I didn't say, oh, wow, but I went, he's awake. Yeah. So I said, so I picked up the count from what it was in my head, four. And when I said five, his eyes popped wide open. He rolled over. He, his, no part of his body other than the soles of his feet were on the ground anymore. Once I finished saying nine, once I said nine, everything was up. He was rising, checked them out, assessed them, made them walk to the right and then come back to me to, well, his left, to demonstrate to the doctors, the commission, and the, the audience that he is in full control of his body. Because I'm about to let this wounded prey go out against a guy with a like a windmill type punches that will you know can take your head off. And I, I wanted to let everybody know he was in control of his body, and I let it go. And he survived those next 20 seconds, and Wilder punched himself out trying to finish, and, and Fury took the rest of the round, actually. He did, and, and that's that's really interesting and, and great analysis. Did so, I lose you? No, no, no. We're here, and so uh, I think that was really great analysis um, on on your part. And part of it is that that makes sense that you want to give the champion the benefit of the doubt, so you don't want to just wave it off as he goes down. Now, this was an interesting case because Wilder, you know, has the title belt, the WBC belt. Fury is the lineal champion, so in a way, you want to give respect to to both guys. If you watch it back, you're actually over him. At six, and he's completely still down. And he I have lost you. you. You broke up. Say that again. I was just saying it's it's interesting in this case because if I watch it, if I watch it, if you watch it, you were actually over him at six, and it's actually miraculous that he got up before ten, but he did. Um, I beg to I beg to differ with you. I was over him by four. My no, first count was four. I agree. You were over him by four, and you stayed till six when he's completely down. Even by six, he's still down. But but from between six to ten he gets up, um, and so I think that that was uh, that was miraculous on his part. Now I I actually even timed it, and even even using a timer he still gets up before ten on my time. He he got up at nine point nine eight 
Um, and here's my question about a situation like that. Now, we've talked about the rules about intentional fouls. In a situation where you're counting, is it a is it the rule supposed to be if you start a stopwatch, or is the rule supposed to be the referee counting? So the referee's pace of one, two, three, which might not be an exact uh, exactly the same as a stopwatch. The referee's count is the official count, and okay. unfortunately, we don't have stopwatches in our heads, so we right. try to keep it as close as possible to a full ten second count. And you do the best you can, but it's not perfect. But let me tell you, tell you something, too. Sure. We've just had five deaths in boxing this right. year. Okay, And what people don't understand is that it's not the old days and the old school where they let you hit the guy as soon as his hands came off the ground. Right. You know, we're, we're, we've evolved. It's like football and everything else, and we don't want to get anybody hurt or killed. So the second part. Once you count, you know, you get a 10 count that he has to be off the ground. And after that, it's an assessment of his condition. Can he intelligently defend himself from this point on? So in the old days, it was wipe the gloves and let's go. Right now it's and then 90 percent of the time when a guy gets knocked down that way and he gets up even today, 90 percent of the time he's getting knocked out. And usually as a referee, you'll I'll stay close. And if you look at this fight after I let them go. I wasn't in the background anymore. I was like four feet from them because I knew the, I might have to immediately protect Fury because Wilder was going to come in to take his head off. And then when I realized that T Tyson was smart, he held him and, and right. stalled and he got through it, I backed off and let him fight. And, and a fighter, let me tell you something too that you might find interesting. interesting. Sure. When a fighter is hurt, in trouble, he don't have a lot of choices. He could run. He could hold. He could take a knee. He could spit his mouthpiece out to take time. Or he could foul his opponent, take another point, but get a nice long rest. Hit him in the hit him in the you know hit him with a low shot, which you know guys do all the time, and take the rest, take the point. Right. In this case, what we want to see is a referee. The number one thing I want him to do is run. If he's got his legs and he could run, run. It, it's just like you and I. If we were getting hit then and we were hurt in the street, our instinct would tell us, stay away until right. you get your head back. But in this case, he didn't have his legs. So the second best thing is to hold. And that's what he was doing. The, the last thing I want to see these guys do is stay put in right. place and just start throwing. They're on instinct. They're going to get knocked out. No, 100%. So I make them walk. I make sure that yep. when I let when I say fight, that that guy is able to intelligently defend himself and I so I can feel good about myself that he's not going to get really hurt. No, and then Fury was able to get up. He he held and then he actually came back in the round which was and won the round. Extraordinary. Yeah, so that that was that was quite an extraordinary performance and and you could say that giving him the benefit of the doubt, not just waving it off right away, was 100% the right decision. You can even see that with oh, his performance. I stand by that completely. I, are you kidding? Yeah. No, That's, 100%. Yeah, it was one of the best decisions I ever made. And well, let me tell you something. Yeah. I'll address this before you do. Here we go again. We have two great guys in a very closely contested fight and this controversy. Right. By Deontay Wilder, which to me, I love the guy. I have the I have mad respect for him. Yeah. But this is the generation we're dealing with today. This didn't happen five years ago and beyond. We didn't have social media like the way it is now, and everyone didn't have a voice. And and even the the millennials, they're 
their mindset is to complain and blame it on someone else. I can't ever see Ken Norton, Joe Frazier, Muhammad Ali screaming a year later. Yeah, right. They still give me, you know, shit on, on, on the internet that Jack Reese did it. You know what? Let's move on, man. You're the cha- heavyweight champ of the world. You have so much weight in the things that you say. All you have to do is say, you know what? I've learned from that. I will do better next time. I wasn't perfect, but I will do better next time. Bring that fight. It's my opinion. No, that, and that's that's just part of the boxing game. It's It's been like that for a long time. I think it was Don King took Mike Tyson to, to protest when he knocked down Buster Douglas, saying that Buster Douglas had extra time to get, get up count. from that first count, right? So that's, that's – that, and you know that that comes with the territory, especially with heavyweight championship fights. So – just to just to kind of wrap it up, you know, we talked about fighter safety, and I, I actually did a full uh, special on fighter safety. I talked to experts about what we can do to make our sport safer. You are in a unique position because things like what you said make sense because you want to give a champion the benefit of the doubt, but then you also want to balance his health, his life. I'm glad you brought up uh, in the Logan Paul or KSI situation. You said, "What would the parents be thinking?" Right? I need to I need to protect their children uh, for their families that are watching. So. How and you, how am I going to feel about myself right. if I let a guy who couldn't defend himself go out there and get killed? And let me tell you, yeah. there's referees that have taken their life after these situations. Mitch Halpern, Toby uh, Gibson, and right. others have killed themselves because they've had to live with this. I, I don't want to do that. you know. And, that's, and that was my question is how do you balance that, right? How do you balance – Fans want their their money's worth. They want entertainment. If you stop a fight too early, people are, there's going to be backlash. I've been calling for a change in the culture, right? Where we where we don't say that fights were stopped too early because no matter what, that that's good for a fighter's health, and they're going to have to deal with that for the rest of their their lives. So our entertainment should take a back seat. But you in that unique position, right? And you have to make these split second decisions. You have no instant replay. Uh, you you can't you can't talk to anyone else. It's just you making those decisions. So how do you deal with that as a as a referee? knowing that these fighters' lives are on the line. Man, that's uh, you just threw me the biggest softball anybody's ever thrown <laughs> me. Thank you. Well, I'm going to tell you what I'm doing. I'm actually taking the brunt of people who don't understand boxing yeah. because I'm acting in a safer manner. I make them walk to the right and left. People say, oh, he takes too much time. Fine. 30 years ago, you might have got away with that. I, I, I have... I was a firefighter, a captain on the LA Fire Department for 31 years, EMT, paramedic engine company. I've been to more trauma than some ER doctors. So I'm very comfortable, very familiar with trauma. I understand a lot of the dynamics of it. And again, my job is to make sure the fighter can intelligently defend himself. So me, what I'm doing throughout the fight is I got like a scale in my head and I'm registering for both boxers the amount of damage they're taking throughout the fight. And let me say this to you. I study the fighters, especially on big fights, when I got an opportunity, when I know who they are, I study them and I and I try to get a baseline on the fighter. What's normal for that fighter? Yep. And I have to assume when I go in the dress room to talk to them and when they walk in that ring, they are at that tip top level, the best they're ever going to be, tip top shape without ever taking, without taking punches. And I watch, that's the baseline. And as they take damage, I watch them fall away from that baseline. I'm watching their body language. I'm watching how they move, watching how they're breathing, watching, you know, if they can't even hold up their arms, watching their gait as they're moving, watching how they're sitting on the stool in between rounds. Every round of every fight, 
I, I do a flyby in the corner. I don't interrupt the corner, but I walk into the corners after I pick up the card and I just listen to what the trainers are saying. And I look at their body language. Are they sitting on the stool like this, ready to go? Or are they flopped out like they're ready to die? I'm watching their chest move up and down or the diaphragm move up and down to see, you know, how they're, how they're doing. I'm watching them during the fight. Are they fighting to survive or they really want to be in that fight? During the fight, I ask myself questions when it's a really competitive fight, but one guy doesn't look like he really has the opportunity to win. I say to myself, it's the sixth round of an eight-round fight. Does this guy really have a mathematical chance to win the fight? He's lost five out of eight. He can't win without a knockdown or, or, or knockout. Number two, I say, does he have a, a, um, a puncher's chance, a real puncher's chance? Everybody will say everybody has a puncher's chance. I want a guy that has a real puncher's chance. Does he have visible physical damage? Yes or no, that plays into my picture. Does he really want to be there? Is he just fighting to survive? And then I ask myself, what's the best thing to do for boxing? And if it's to pull that kid out and I don't get an opportunity, even if it's in the middle of the ring, stop and just say, that's it. I've seen enough. I've seen enough. He can't win. I implore the corners in between rounds. You know him better than me. He don't look right to me. What's your opinion? And that, that little push that I give them, if one end of every time I one of every time, 10 times I do it, it just edges the corner guy. It gives him enough. Yeah, the referee sees the same thing I do. I'm stopping it. And that we pull one guy out of every 10 out. I'm happy with it. Whatever we could do. It's a team. I got doctors. By the way, this is going to be really interesting to you. My commission just uh, is in the process of putting out a policy. And you people are going to go, what? They're going to be telling us the referee on a 12-round fight, they're going to be handing us the scores at the ninth round and in uh, the eighth round and in the tenth round of every right. fight. So we could see, it, like, Maxim Dadashev, right, yeah. that fight? He lost nine rounds in a row. He couldn't win that fight mathematically. Maybe if that commission had a policy, it helps me. It's one tool in my tool chest that I could say, he no longer has a mathematical chance of winning. I really got to consider pulling this guy out. This is this is what's changing in boxing. Also, my commissioner, Andy Foster, and, and the athletic commission, John Carvelli, Marta uh, Shanyakides, the most progressive people when it comes to weight cutting. This is what's killing the fighters, the weight cutting. Uh, I'll tell you in a nutshell, in a small way, what happens. They kill themselves to make weight. They right. drain their body of all the fluid. Your brain wants to keep itself alive it says chemical the body sends chemicals to the brain to absorb every ounce of water that's left in the body they get on the scale they get off the scale they're chugging the water down the chemicals are still in the brain and it's sucking up all the water that they're now the brain is swollen in the skull and concussed then 12 hours later they're getting tapped in the head and they're getting those brain bleeds that's why they're dying so they're changing the amount of weight from the weigh-in to the next day when they're ready to fight, doing second-day weigh-ins. They're changing the amount of weight you're allowed to gain. It used to be unlimited. If I was 150 and I came in the next day at, at 180, no big deal. They're changing it. They're making it 10% or 15% or down to 10% and eventually down to 5% because that's the most um, safe 
way to go. You're 150. You can't come uh, in more than, uh, you know, uh, seven and a half pounds over, whatever it is, 10% of that. And I'll tell you what, we have to do it. People say, why are you doing that? You yeah. have to do it. I'm going to tell you why. This is a culture. These kids are warriors. They will do anything to win. One of our inspectors was doing an MMA fight. He goes in with the same culture, just about. He goes into the, uh, the bathroom to do something with a urine sample on one fighter, and he sees another fighter at the weigh-in sitting over the sink, gushing blood out of his nose. He says, hey, are you okay? Can I help you? And the guy goes, no, no, I'm okay. I'm okay. He goes, well, here, man, take these towels. Stop that bleeding. And the guy goes, no, I said I'm okay. He punched himself in the nose to lose a few extra pounds oh my to God. make weight. So if you think we don't have to regulate this sport and what these guys are doing, it, it, I don't mean you, but people think that they're wrong. We have to take some kind of charge and just do what's safe to keep the guys safe. No, 100%. I've been calling for this for a long time. You know, we've had five pro high profile deaths just this year, and, and I'm sure there's more that aren't reported. So sure. I think it's great that that you're working on solutions. I think the scorecard idea is interesting. I think, of course, looking at weight cuts and rehydration um, is, is definitely important. And, and as you touched upon culture, culture, cu culture, that is the biggest thing because that will that will go through everyone in the sport. Um, and, and I hope we are able to make those changes. Jack Reese, I want to thank you so much for your time, for your great refereeing work. And, and yeah, please go ahead. So uh, what what people don't understand about saving these guys' lives, it's yeah. not one thing. It's a right. team of people, and everybody's got to do their job. The doctors, the commission, the timekeepers. I'm not timekeepers. The you know, and the referees, right. the cornermen. And what I've what I try to do is be part of this team. And what I yeah. what I also do is I have protocols for myself that I follow each and every time. Look, I didn't sleep over a firehouse three days in a row working 72 hours and go to sleep, get up the next morning and not check my breathing apparatus. I didn't take anything for granted. You check it every day. Same thing as a fighter. There's protocols about studying the fighter, going into the corners every round, communicating with the doctor and all these and a bunch of stuff because I know you got to go. A bunch of things that you do, you follow each and every time, which will keep them safer. And if everybody had protocols in their position, it would make it give everybody more tools to e help each other get out, get these kids out of these fights. No, 100 percent. And that's one of the things that I've been saying as well, that there needs to be an overarching rule system that's that's universally used throughout the sport. Right. You don't want to have it safe in some states, not in others, under some commissions and not in others. It needs to be universal and there needs to be more education, more more research and, and a change in the culture. So I thank you uh, for echoing that statement. And, and Jack Reese, I just want to thank you so much for the time. I, I, I think you're you're an excellent referee and I hope to see you on, on the big fights i know you will be working those and if i as a as an observer of the sport if i see jack reese as the third man in in the ring then i'm gonna know that it's gonna be a well refereed fight and i'm gonna look forward to that fight so thank you so much for the time thank you for for breaking it down and then i hope to chat with you soon so there's jack reese explaining in detail all of the decisions he made for ksi logan paul for Tyson Fury versus Deontay Wilder uh, talking about boxing safety. So I want to thank Jack Reese for his analysis and giving us the time that he did. 
So we were talking about two-point deductions, and I, I wanted to kind of just go a little bit further into that. So I spoke with Lee Groves. He's a CompuBox researcher. He's a boxing author. He's a boxing historian. There's probably no one on planet Earth who knows more about boxing than Lee Groves. So I wanted to ask him about two-point deductions. I wanted to kind of go into that. What's the history of those? How often do those happen? Um, and so we had a conversation about that. He did a little bit of research before we talked, and, and we, we talked about that. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Lee Groves. I am Karan Bhatia. This is Ask the Experts. I'm speaking to boxing historian, author, Lee Groves. Lee, we know that you've seen so much boxing in your time. We just came off of the uh, KSI Logan Paul rematch, and um, there was an interesting moment there where Jack Reese in the fourth round decided to deduct two points from Logan Paul. Now, he said that uh, Logan held the head of KSI and, and hit him while holding his head, and then he said he hit uh, KSI when KSI was on the way down. So he decided to take two points. So my, my first question for you, Lee, is, have you ever seen a two-point deduction before in boxing, and is it a common occurrence? It's not a common occurrence, but it has happened before. I, I've seen it uh, several times during my, uh, I guess, 45 years of observation. Uh, the most famous example happened in the, uh, in the bite fight between Mike Tyson and Evander Holyfield. Uh, shortly after um, Mike bit Evander for the first time, uh, Mills Lane, ref, the referee, intended to disqualify Tyson right then and there. But then he consulted with Mark Ratner, uh, and, uh, it, you know, Mark asked him, are you sure you want to do that? And, uh, that question, uh, prompted Mills to, uh, change his mind and, uh, first deduct two points from, uh, from Tyson for an intentional foul. And, uh, you know, that's what he did. The fight continued. And then when Tyson bit him again, then that le the, the two-point penalty from before laid the groundwork and the justification for the disqualification for the second bite. So uh, uh, that, that is the most famous incident. Uh, in researching this for, uh, for, the, for the phone call, I did come across one other uh, incident of a, uh, a two-point penalty, but it was done under far different circumstances. Um, on October 4, 2008, uh, Jesse Vargas was uh, engaging in his second professional fight against a guy named Trenton Titsworth. And uh, Titsworth apparently kissed Vargas behind his ear which prompted not only the referee to uh, inflict a two-point deduction, but also for Vargas to hit him back. Uh, he didn't exactly like it so much. So, uh, you know, it, it has happened, but it's a pretty rare occurrence. It, it has happened, and it, it's hard for people to find many times uh, that it's occurred. It's actually one other interesting point. I, I spoke to Jack Reese, uh, and he actually pointed out after I spoke to him that he's actually done this before. When Andre Ward fought Edwin Rodriguez. This was in November of 2013. Mm -hmm. uh, Jack Reese deducted two points from both fighters in the fourth round for unsportsmanlike conduct. Um, wow. So he has taken that option before. Now, if you look at the rule book, it says that it's up to the referee, especially in the California rules, which is where the um, KSI versus Logan Paul fight was. It says that a referee, it's up to a referee's discretion to take one or more points. Mm -hmm. um, so overall, Lee, would you agree that 
it's not common, but it is within the referee's right to do so. Yeah, it, it is. Theoretically, Jack Reese was was within his rights to uh, to penalize two points for an intentional foul. And uh, I, I've seen uh, camera shots of uh, the referee's instructions before uh, before major fights. And one of the things that they mention is that uh, you know an intentional foul is is a two point penalty. And uh, yeah, so Jack was within his rights to do what he did. Now, with that said, he is within his rights. Um, you know, there's obviously a lot of attention on this fight because it was high-profile fighters. Now, not necessarily good boxers, right? They're both making their pro debut, mm-hmm. but they had a big following uh, from their time on YouTube, and, and they, there was a lot of eyeballs on this fight. Um, the highlights of the fight have 11 million views already on YouTube. The, the broadcast itself on The Zone uh, was the highest-viewed live fight on The Zone ever. Um, so that, wow. that tells you something about people watching it. So... With that said, there's going to be scrutiny. There's going to be uh, people looking through with a fine-tooth comb, just like we are. So you saw the moment that we're talking about in the fourth round where Logan Paul scored the knockdown with the uppercut, but then mm-hmm. he held KSI's head, like I said. He, he hit him while he was holding his head, and he hit him on the way down. What, what would you have done as a referee there? Do you think the, the two points was warranted for that moment? Uh, it, well, you know, hearing the... the, the um the explanation from Jack Reese that, uh, if I understood you correctly, it wasn't only for the, uh, you know, the motion to hit KSI while he was down, but also the holding and hitting yes. with the uppercut. That, that, those two things together were the reasoning behind uh, his taking two points. If you take one point for one foul and another one point for the other foul, I could see where he could come up with that. I don't remember on the video him saying specifically, and maybe he did. Maybe he did say that uh, that it was for the two fouls. But if you're just taking it for the the swipe uh, that 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 really didn't land uh, while he was on his knees, you know, I, I've seen more blatant fouls of of guys getting hit while they were down uh, that got one point as opposed to two. But, uh, you know, since Jack said that it was for the two separate fouls, then, yeah, I could see uh, I could see his reasoning behind that. And do you think that this was a this was a, a six round fight, right? It was it was like we said, it was mm-hmm. a pro debut of two guys. It's, it's a short fight. There's obviously four round fights, um, but we're, we're used to usually 10 or 12 rounds. Right. Do you think that that should play a factor in terms of referees making a decision? Uh, and I'll tell you why I'm asking. If it's a shorter fight, those extra points, whether it be for a knockdown or a referee deducting one or two points, are going to play a bigger factor, right? They're going to have more weight because there's less rounds, so there's less opportunity for for that person who was penalized to gain those points back. So my question for you is, do you think the length of the fight should come come into play when a referee is making a decision like that? No, I don't think so. I think a foul is a foul, and a violation is a violation. You should uh, you should uh, take that into consideration before you do it. I know it was kind of a heat of the moment situation for uh, for Logan Paul when he did what he did. He was losing the fight up to that point. KSI had uh, gotten off to a, a much better start than he did in the in the first fight the previous year, and uh, he was carrying the action. He was landing the harder shots and. Uh, 
And uh, this was Logan Paul's comeback moment. You know, he hits him with a clean uppercut to the jaw. And then uh, what happened happened after that. And, uh, you know, they, they've been beefing with each other for, for quite a long time. And when you put a man down, and I think this is the first time either one of them scored a knockdown in the fight, uh, he was probably really full of himself and uh, and really juiced up with emotion. And he did what he did. But, uh you know I, that that's sort of a uh, a byproduct of the fact that these guys were you know they they weren't experienced boxers they uh they were they had a crowd that was cheering a, a full house uh of people cheering and the emotions get away from you and logan paul pretty much admitted that in the post fight interview that his emotions got away from him but as far as the referee is concerned you know jack reese is a very seasoned professional and I, I think he took the, you know, a foul is a foul. And, uh, you know, you, you really don't, you really shouldn't make, uh, you know, calls based on, you know, the length of a fight or where where uh, you are in proximity to the end of a round or end of a fight or whatever. Uh, he's there to uphold the rules. And, um, and you know, by being consistent, he's he's doing his job, I think. He, he was certainly doing his job, and, and I spoke to him about uh, in length about that moment. And I think that there there are so many eyeballs on on this fight, and, and it is important to stay focused and just treat it like any other fight, and and mm-hmm. uh, make the decisions that you would make in, in other times. Um, the other part of it was he did have the option. You know, we've seen it before where fighters actually get disqualified for for hitting their opponent when they're on the ground. And I think oh, famously sure. uh, Roy Jones against Montel Griffin, right, the yeah. first time that they fought. Uh, Jones losing his his uh, his perfect record there by by hitting um, Montel when he was down. Yeah. So do you uh, you may not agree necessarily with taking two points versus one, but do you think it was the the correct move uh, at least for Jack Reese to to keep the fight going and not disqualify Logan Paul there? Oh, absolutely. No, yes, uh, he he was right not to disqualify him at that moment. Uh, it wasn't a blatant enough violation you know watching it at real speed you 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 know it's kind of hard to pick up exactly uh everything that happened at that moment and uh you know credit credit to jack for seeing everything and and doing what he did but uh no that 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 wasn't worthy of a disqualification you know roy hit uh, montel hit him with two shots while he was on his knee and uh and, and Montel was pretty much clocked by that uh by that shot. And I know that Roy even now, you know, many years later he still uh disputes uh that, that particular decision, but uh, you know, I mean uh that that was about as blatant as you could get and uh, you know, it it is what it is. But yeah, Jack did the right thing. He did by not disqualifying him. No, absolutely. And I was speaking to Jack about this and I made the point that Usually, as as you know, us as fans and observers, uh, we we love this sport, and we usually say if if a referee is doing a good job, we're not hearing his name because that means he's not getting involved. Now, in the case of you have two guys making their pro debut and they're kind of throwing punches from different planets here, <laughs> you may have to get involved, right? Because there's going to be some uh, you know dirty tactics used, even if it is unintentional, like you said, because it's just people getting caught up in the moment, right, under the bright lights uh, of a boxing ring for the for the first time. So just to close it out, let me ask you this, Lee, you said you've been covering the sport for 45 years. I know that, you know, when you start not covering, <laughs> observing, um, and, and I know that when you started, 
There was no YouTube. There was no Vine. There was no Twitch, of course. Right. But if I was to tell you that the main event on one of the biggest boxing platforms was between two people uh, who were not professional fighters necessarily making their pro debut and uh, th- their fame had come from making uh, videos and skits and, and gaming. W- would you have believed me if I had told you that when you first started uh, observing this sport? <laughs> uh, you know, it, it really, a lot has changed since the 1970s. Uh, it, it's a completely different universe that we are in. Uh, when, I was, uh, when I was first uh, learning about the sport, we basically had the three the three TV major networks, NBC, ABC, uh, and NBC, uh, or CBS, NBC, ABC. And, uh, you know, we saw fights on the weekend. Sometimes we saw them uh, in prime time. But, uh, you know, now with uh, with YouTube and with the streaming platforms and with cable TV, uh, we, we are seeing, uh, you know, global uh, boxing all over the world uh, virtually uh, – you know, three, four, five times a week, kind of like the early days with the old Gillette fights where, uh, you know, the net, the networks would have boxing on, uh, so often, um, you, you know, it, it really is quite something. And, and with that increase in technology, it, there's also, it becomes much easier to become famous. And, uh, that's how Logan Paul and KSI, they became famous through their YouTube, uh, YouTube connection. They became very well known and when you have two, and there's a curiosity factor. Everybody can relate to boxing because every, a lot of us, or virtually every one of us, has been in a situation where we've been in a fist fight, uh, where we had to defend ourselves. We kind of relate to it. And when you have two people that you know so well trying something that they haven't done before, and, uh, you know, there's a curiosity factor uh, that you, you want to know. And, uh, and there are a lot of people who normally don't tune in the boxing tuning into this. And, uh, and, of course, on the undercard, they, you know, if they were paying attention, they would get to see uh, a rising star in Devin Haney. And you would see an established, uh, very good uh, boxer in, in Billy Joe Saunders doing what he's, you know, wow, who are these guys? So, um you know, hopefully there's a, uh, you know, it, it's not surprising consider the level of fame that, that an event like this would get a lot of extra eyeballs. Um, so, um, but but if, uh, if those same eyeballs were focused on the undercard fights and, and they were impressed by what they saw, maybe, maybe they'll come back, maybe they won't, I don't know. But uh, as far as the event is concerned, um, you know, it, uh, it, I remember uh, a few years back, we would have these celebrity boxing matches between yep. Danny Bonaducci and, you know, Tanya mm-hmm. Harding was in there. And, uh, and, right. and, they, and they didn't go through the training. They'd just throw the gloves on, get a TV camera, and hopefully get some ratings. With Logan and, and KSI, they at least um, they did it once under amateur rules. And then the rematch was done under the, um, you know, the, the regular rules. They went through the, 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 the professional protocols. They got a license. They got into condition. They did it without headgear. They did it uh, uh, in a sanctioned fight in a big, in a big fight state, um, three-minute rounds, you know, all the trappings and, and all the preparation that comes in uh, to a, uh, a regulation prize fight. And and those guys deserve credit for uh, for going through the process, and you know, 
it, it could have been a much worse fight when it came to technique. Um, so, you know, they, they, they did themselves well. Um, they, they did a lot of business for themselves. They drew a crowd. Uh, they probably made a lot of money off of this, which is, which is great for them. And, uh, but it's, you know, this shouldn't be a, an every, you know, a really common thing, you know, um, uh, they went through the protocols, but I don't know if other people would go through the protocols, you know, we'll see how it goes in the future. Certainly 100%. And what I've been saying is that it definitely was worth the shot of attracting new fans. Like you mentioned the people on the undercard, Devin Haiti, BJ Saunders. I think I've read that their uh, Twitter followers or, or their social media followers have gone up in the tens of thousands because people became aware of them. So maybe there's a chance that people who did buy this fight, they at least get one month of the zone. And maybe there's a chance that they stick around. They watch, uh, you know, for example, they watch uh, Andy Ruiz versus uh, Anthony Joshua rematch yeah. coming up next month or, or whatever the case may be. But, I think it's I think it's worth taking that shot uh, for the sport itself um, to, to hope that that people you know stick around and we get new fans and I think uh, like we've been saying I think these guys earned uh, the right to to be on the main event here uh, and they did it they went about it the right way they they got licensed as professionals they took the training seriously um, and for a pro debut with two guys getting a pro debut it was it was a good enough scrap and and we'll take that so Lee Groves. I want to thank you so much uh, for your time, for, for putting this into context for us and giving us some clarifications in terms of uh, the rulings. Uh, thanks so much for the time, and I hope to chat with you soon. I hope so as well. All the best to you. That was Lee Groves breaking it down. As I said, there may not be another person uh, on planet Earth who watches more boxing. Uh, maybe Tim Hawk from uh, Twitter, but... Uh, probably not many others who've seen more boxing or actively watch more boxing um, and understand the sport uh, the way that Lee Groves does. So, moving on now, we want to react to, of course, the big uh, Deontay Wilder win over Luis Ortiz in the rematch. Now, I co-host a debate show. It's called Standing 8 Count. My co-host is Dan Canobio uh, from CompuBox TV. And um, the show airs on Pluto TV. You can find it on YouTube uh, if you search for uh, Standing 8 Count Inside Boxing Live on CompuBox TV. You can also find it uh, on my personal YouTube page. That's uh, YouTube backslash Curran Batia, C-U-R-R-A-N-B-H-A-T-I-A. And um, we spoke about uh, the Deontay Wilder-Luis Ortiz rematch fight. We, we reacted to it. We talked about future matchups. So I'm going to put some snippets from my back and forth with Dan Canobio as we debate on the standing eight count. And we're here to talk about some boxing. Obviously, a lot of the rounds that we're going to talk about is from this Wilder fight, his knockout over Ortiz. I know you watched the fight, Kern. What are your initial I thoughts? Did, on it? I did. That? He had a decent right hand, right? I think he has a little bit of power, this guy. I feel like there's a, a, a conversation that's going on on Twitter that's just going to light up Twitter now. Going went from pound for pound to how powerful that right hand was. But what was your like initial reaction to that knockout? I was shocked because Ortiz is doing his thing, and then boom, just like that. So obviously very impressive by Wilder. Yeah, so we'll talk about Wilder, we're going to talk about Mayweather, we're going to talk about the PBC belts. Let's get right into it, our first round here on the standing eight count. Obviously, Deontay Wilder admittedly was not winning any rounds in this fight. Larry Hazard may have had it the other way, but he was down on the cards. What my question for you, Kern, is his game plan of looking for one shot too risky? The answer is yes, it is too risky. Now, it's worked out for Wilder so far. Obviously, he's knocked out most of his opponents. 
But in this fight against Ortiz, he was down on the scorecards. One scorecard 58-56 for Ortiz. The other two were 59-55. He was losing this fight. And he actually admitted that. Uh, Post-fight, he went up to the desk at Fox and he said, hey, I'm losing the fight on most scorecards, but I find my right hand. It is a risky strategy because one day he may end up against someone who can kind of box and move, who has a chin, and he may not be able to find that right hand. So uh, my answer to that question is yes, it's too risky. I wouldn't even know if it's if we would kind of categorize it as a game plan or just what Deontay Wilder is at this point in his career. You're not going to change who he is. He's 34 years old. Uh, he got a late start in the boxing game, and he's come a long way. If you took in the last five years, go back to his fights early on with Stavern. He was a little more wild. But what you have here with JDs and Mark Breland, who had one of the best jabs and one of the best amateurs of all time, is if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Stick with Deontay Wilder. He's not gonna. They're not gonna teach him how to jab. They're not gonna teach him right. uh, the finer aspects of boxing at this point in his career. What they are gonna do is look at his footwork. What it comes down to is him getting in range to land that right hand. Watch how he. Next time you watch a Wilder fight, watch how he moves in a little bit. He moves in. He puts that range finder out there behind every great right hand for Deontay Wilder is a range finder jab. He does have a very good jab as well. He's one of only three fighters that land more than 30% of their jabs. The others being Anthony Joshua and Gennady Golovkin. But when it comes down to it, I think don't you know don't change who you are at this point. Just kind of refine what you do. And what he has is the most powerful right hand in the heavyweight division today in boxing and maybe of all time. If they say if it ain't broke, don't fix it, like you said. But it kind of is broke, and I'll tell you why. It's worked so far against every opponent except. Tyson Fury, right? Uh, Wilder was trying to find the right hand all night. He finally found it in the 12th round, and obviously we know Fury got up and it was a draw, but it was a close fight and he almost didn't get the knockdown there. So that is that is bad for Wilder if, if he can't find that right hand. And guess who his next opponent is? Tyson Fury. Supposedly. So supposedly in February right. of 2020, they're, they're trying to make it uh, come together for February 22nd at T-Mobile Arena. But what if Fury boxes again? Fury has a decent chin. And what if Wilder isn't able to find him? So I think, I think it's too risky of a strategy. Now, to your point about Wilder not learning new things, I guess it was reported by Joe Goosen on the broadcast. He said Wilder's team is working on new things in the gym. They're trying to teach a special secret punch, which I guess was a right hook that he was working I think it, on. But what, I think it was that left something i saw from wilder in this fight that i had not seen was a as a quick looping left hook right like a quick one he actually hit ortiz with a few of those maybe that but like you said i don't think they're going to change him nor should they they right. should just refine everything they're doing with him there's a couple things that are always true in boxing. There's always going to be big knockouts in the heavyweight division. And now in modern day, there's going to be big discussion on Twitter. Deontay Wilder, one of the most polarizing figures in boxing. So as soon as he knocked out Ortiz, the debate started on Twitter. So let me ask you this, Dan. Is Deontay Wilder one of the highest, most powerful punchers in heavyweight history? Yeah, it's funny. We went away from the fighter of the decade conversation on Twitter. Now we're talking about the power of Deontay Wilder, where it stacks up all time uh, in the heavyweight division. I don't know. It's just like a pound for pound debate. It's very subjective. Boxing is one of the most subjective sports out there. There's not a man out there that's tasted the power of Ernie Shavers, George Foreman, Mike Tyson, Deontay Wilder, or whoever you have on your list. So how do you really gauge 
like how do we gauge what is the most powerful fighter i like to listen to the fighters out there uh the, a lot of fighters weighed in a lot of Bach current uh, fighters weighed in and they all said that deontay wilder has earth-shattering power has generational power but the main thing is now deontay wilder's in the discussion he's in that room he's in that that air there so i think we need to kind of just accept what it is and kind of be like you know what we have our guy in our division in our generation that stacks up with these mythical you know guys that we never thought we'd be in the same discussion with He's certainly in the conversation. Obviously, people are now comparing his power to Mike Tyson. If you look at his knockout percentage before the fight, it was 95.2%. Now it's up to 95.3%, so it's slowly creeping up there. He's also in the discussion in other ways, right? He, he defended his title 10 times, so that's been done only by Ali, Holmes, Lewis, and Klitschko. So he's in the conversation in the rare air, so to speak, with the other great heavyweights. He's becoming part of that story. And so you're going to have to start putting him in these mythical debates. And that includes, you know, heavyweights of all time. That includes the best of the era. That includes the most powerful uh, puncher. And that's that's what we're talking about. And I think part of it is that he has these spectacular knockouts. And that just adds to his overall aura. And I think, I think the boxing purists out there, and there's a lot of them uh, in the boxing world, they have a hard time putting him in that conversation with some of the all-time greats in the heavyweight division, like a George Foreman, Evander Holyfield, Mike Tyson, go down the list because Deontay Wilder is a flawed fighter, but that's what makes him exciting. We're not talking about who's the best heavyweight of all time, because it's not Deontay Wilder, it's who's the most powerful puncher. And when it comes to the heavyweight division, and I've noticed this, when you take a look at the pound for pound rankings, it's very rare you see a heavyweight in the top five because they are not looked at as sweet scientists. They're more looked at as powerful punchers. That's what Deontay Wilder is. And another thing is, we need to just kind of accept the fact that we are living in a great time in the heavyweight division, not only because it's never been more exciting or hasn't been this exciting uh, since the mid 90s, but we have a guy, Deontay Wilder, who's giving us those highlight reel knockouts, who's giving us those Mike Tyson moments. How many current, we're generally the same age, we have to just hear stories about the power of Mike Tyson or the power of George Foreman or Ernie Shavers. Now we have our guy here, Deontay Wilder, who is an American, who's brash, who talks a lot of smack. So let's accept Deontay, Deontay Wilder for what he is rather than talk about everything that's wrong with him. Exactly. It's not exactly what you said. It's not the best heavyweight of all time. It's saying the best puncher of all time. It's like saying Steph Curry is the best shooter of all time. He's not necessarily the best basketball player uh, of all time. So that, that's kind of where the, the debate is at. Now, you also have to look at Deontay Wilder has said this before, and I think it was definitely proven true. He only has to be right for two seconds. Everyone else that he has to be, everyone else that he fights has to be right for 12 rounds. So he only has to be right for two seconds. And if you look at the punch statistics provided by CopyBox, Ortiz landed 35 punches, uh, Wilder landed 34, but it was that 34th <laughs> punch right. that put Ortiz down and out. If you heard that collective sigh of relief after Wilder Ortiz was over, that was the top-ranked executives knowing that they now have the rematch that has been marinating for over a year. Deontay Wilder, Tyson Fury supposedly scheduled for February 22nd in Las Vegas, we think. Well, Curran, my question for you here is, who has the edge going into the rematch? I'm going to give the edge to Deontay Wilder in the rematch against Tyson Fury, and I'll tell you why. I think Deontay Wilder is actually getting better, and I think he showed that in his fight against Ortiz. Now, we know the strategy was risky to kind of wait and, and see till you get the opening for the right hand, but if you notice, when he did get the fight at the right hand, he set it up beautifully with his left. He actually was blinding Ortiz. He said he worked on that in the gym, to blind you with the left hand, and then boom, the right hand comes in over the top. He worked on that in the gym, and I think he's actually improving those skills. Obviously, we know he got into boxing late at 19 years old, so he's still kind of evolving. 
Tyson Fury, on the other end, he's doing a lot of things, right? He, he, he did a wrestling, a WWE match. He wants to fight in MMA. He's recording music. I don't think his head is in it the same way that Deontay Wilder is. And Deontay Wilder also said, post-fight, that he feels good about keeping the continuous training camps going, right? He's kind of building yeah. off. He said, shape on top of shape. So I give the edge to Deontay Wilder. I just actually listened to that song that Tyson Fury did with Robbie Williams called Bad Sharon. Want to check it out on Spotify. I just gave Tyson Fury a plug here. But I give Deontay Wilder the slightest of edges heading in, in, into the rematch, mainly because I think that Tyson Fury is a much better fighter than Luis Ortiz is in every aspect of the game. I think he has a better jab. I think he lands it more often. I think uh, Tyson Fury has a very underrated power punch with that right hand. He actually cracked Wilder a few times when Wilder had him hurt uh, or vice versa in that 12th round. But I'm giving the slightest of edges to Deontay Wilder, mainly because of the less wear and tear since their first fight. I mean, look at Deontay Wilder. He had one round against Dominic Brazil. This fight with Luis Ortiz, he only got hit with 35 punches. None of them actually hurt him. And then you took a look over at Tyson Fury, which you just highlighted. You know, the, all the distractions. But let's talk about the fight he had with Otto Valin. He did not think it was going to go that long. He did not think that there was going to be a 46 stitches in his eye. So I think that Tyson Fury has taken a little more of the wear and tear. You know, the weight fluctuation, I, does, I do think you have to play a role here too. But I give Deontay Wilder the slightest of edges, mostly because of the momentum that he has going into the rematch. And the other thing that you have to look at is how the other, the first fight ended. Now, in that 12th round, we all know Deontay Wilder found the right hand with the left hook. Tyson Fury went down. Now, I spoke to Deontay Wilder. He feels like Jack Reese had a slow count. I spoke to Jack Reese. Jack Reese feels like he did the correct count, of course. Now, I took a stopwatch to it. I had 9.98 seconds. So on my count, that means Wilder was 0.02 seconds away from getting the knockout, and we wouldn't even be having this conversation. With that all said, I actually think Wilder probably found something, that opening, um, on, on, on what to do on Tyson Fury, and I think he'll be able to do that again in the rematch. And also, I think that Wilder can't figure out Fury. I think Fury is in his mind, and that style is going to give Wilder fits. He's a better boxer uh, than Ortiz. That was a snippet from Standing 8-Count Debate Show. You can find it on Pluto TV. You can hear it on Apple Podcasts. And as I said, you can also see it on the official CompuBox TV YouTube page. Just search for Inside Boxing Live Standing 8-Count. You can also see it on my personal uh, YouTube page, youtube.com backslash current Batia. And you can hear the rest of the topics. We did eight topics uh, this episode, um, so you can hear the rest of the show there. So I wanted to get to my final guest here, and his name is Eric Pollan. So Eric is a senior producer uh, for the PBC Fight Camp series, and this series that we're going to talk about specifically was Wilder versus Ortiz in their rematch. Um, Eric got to watch uh, so much footage, a month's worth of footage, uh, fresh stuff from the, the training camps, and he got to put together the show. And he was also at the fight. He was at Deontay Wilder versus Luis Ortiz rematch. And so we're going to talk to him about the show, how it comes together, who works on it, and we're going to talk about what it was like to uh, to actually be there um, in person. And you don't want to miss, we're going to get Eric Pollan to do a bomb squat. You definitely do not want to miss that. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Eric Pollan. I am Karan Bhatia speaking with Eric Paulin. Eric is the producer for PBC Fight Camp. It was the record-breaking show on Fox. And Eric, you 
just produced the episode, the four episodes, I should say, about Deontay Wilder and Luis Ortiz as they prepared for their rematch. So let me ask you this. You were watching footage every day come in from Wilder's camp, from Ortiz's camp. What were you noticing from from the training? Who was training harder? Who was who looked like they were in better shape? What what were you noticing? Well, in terms of, I mean, Deontay's always in incredible shape. So, it, Deontay in the gym, uh, as we saw, I believe in episode three, when he's hitting JDs, and JDs is wearing the body armor. Uh, we learned later on that JDs had to go to the hospital that day from how hard wow. that Deontay was hitting him through the body armor. But what I really noticed, and actually after the fight on Saturday night, we saw Larry Wade and we talked about this, was the progress of, of Luis Ortiz from show one to show four. And we're there for about 30 days, you know, four, four um, full weeks were there. And from show one to show four, uh, we started with a workout with Ortiz and we finished with a workout of Ortiz and how, how incredible he looked, how defined his arms were and how his abs like were cut and the incredible footwork that he had. I mean, that was, that was a, a radical, radical change. And, you know, I, after the fight, we saw Larry Wade in the parking lot at the MGM, and we were talking about that, and I said it was an incredible transformation, and he was so proud of himself, and uh, they really did great work with him. I mean, and, and it showed in the fight. I mean, it showed in the first in the first six rounds, even the first seven rounds until Wilder, Wilder got to him. And we'll talk about the fight. Luis Ortiz, as you said, looked amazing in terms of his shape for a 40-year-old man. Uh, obviously working with Larry Wade, like you said, and then also Victor Conti um, was another addition to, to Luis Ortiz's camp. So let, let me ask you this. Working with a character like Wilder, it's, it's generally, I would say, a good thing. And I say that because you were producing PBC Fight Camp. I was producing PBC Countdown next door, and we were looking back at fights, and we were able to use some great sound bites from Wilder as he kind of broke down his fights. Now, is that a good thing and a bad thing, though? Because we know he's long-winded. Um, we know he's not going to necessarily give you the short sound bite. He's going to give you the long sound bite. So, and also, he's such a big um, celebrity now, such a, such a big um, person in our sport that the access isn't going to be exactly what it would be for someone who's just starting out. So was that a challenge for you in terms of working with Deontay Wilder and his team? No, because when we were there with him, he was amazing. I mean, it was, um, he could turn a crunch fitness session into two minutes of magic, you know, working with his guys, telling the story of, of what, you know, Joey and, and, and Chris Bates meant to him and how they grew up together and they had nothing and, you know, and how far they had come and, uh, what, what their friendship means to them. And so no i mean i didn't and the minute that the mouth opened something good was going to come out of it sometimes it was crazy he believed in mermaids and you know um 
it was, but it was always fun and interesting, and you know, you knew that that if you were in the gym with him, you were gonna get something. And when he gave us those moments, which wound up being, you know, once or twice each show, whether it was the scuba diving or you know, sitting at the sitting at the river in Tuscaloosa and going over the history. Um, you know, he's got a, a deep understanding of history. He's a very, very interesting, um, erudite guy. So, and he's fun. I mean, he really fits the part of the heavyweight champion of the world. He really does, and these these uh, and we'll talk about the fight. But these spectacular knockouts definitely do not hurt that whole aura that he's that he's building. So, um, b- before we talk about the fight. I just wanted you to fill people in on the Fight Camp show and the process. Not everyone may know how it works. Um, so I'll just give the bare bones and you can kind of come into more into detail. You serve as the sure. senior producer for the show. You're overseeing the entire show. There's four episodes, which is one per week. There's a team of field producers and uh, shooters in the field. Uh, there's PAs and APs looking through footage. There's editors. So just talk to me about the process of the show and the challenges of the show in terms of the deadlines and, and putting it all together. So the, the field crew starts typically about five weeks out from the fight. And we're going to be there for a good four weeks usually. Um, sometimes we lead right up to them leaving for the fight. Sometimes we're there, we leave the week before. It kind of just depends on Fox's programming schedule. But what happens is, you know, we, we start off with a simple phone call to the camp. Sometimes you start with the fighters. Sometimes you start with the trainers. And you tell them your expectations, which is we'd like to be a fly on the wall as much as possible over the course of these four weeks. You know, we're going to be professional. We're going to, you know, take as much access as you give us. We never want to interfere in your schedule. And we don't. You know, we are there to kind of capture what we're seeing and, you know, get access to these guys. So we're usually in the gym five days a week with them, uh, depending on the fighter and how much time they're going to give you. We get you know, meals and massages and, you know, uh, <laughs> swimming and <laughs> scuba diving in, in their pools or boat rides at night with their families like Deontay gave us or, you know, Lewis giving us a FaceTime call. But to get back to your, your you know, your the, the process, the process is kind of incredible because that first Monday, we usually do the interviews for your show, that countdown, but sometimes things get going. And by the time that first weekend, you usually have like three or four scenes for each guy that you start putting together and the footage just comes in. It's coming in every single day. And I've, you know, it's like a footage avalanche. It just never stops for the 30 days. And you really have to speak to the field producers who do an incredible job, uh, Lanny, Lanny Levine and, and Jeff Newton, um, and the, and the cameramen and the ACs and the guys who are out there every day. And, you know, as the days go by, you see that the, that the camps trust us more and more. And now we're, we've done four of these 
you know, and we're known, you know, everybody knows the fight camp guys are coming. And um, so you you start out with the field and you're, you're talking about story ideas and what's happening and okay, this will work good into our format, which is kind of, you know, a pie in the sky at the beginning of the week. It's kind of, here's what we'd like to happen. And here's what we hope happens. And, you know, if you get 50% of it, 75% of it, that's great. And you're constantly saying, you know, we got this today in the field. We got that today in the field. Okay, let's make this segment two for Lewis, or let's make that segment three, or we'll end the show, you know, with this. And so it's a, it's a, it's a really very interesting, very difficult process because the time frame, um, other than the first week where you have about eight days of editing time, Basically, you have about five to six for every other show, um, and it just rolls. It rolls on you. When you're finishing show one, you know, the editors and, and the, the producers in the room are, are, are mo- have moved on to show two, and you got to be constantly thinking about the next show, and then you got to start thinking about show three and show four, and um, it's a lot. It's a lot over the course of the month, and it goes very fast. And the days move very, very fast. And, you know, there are days when the fighters, you just say, guys, I need a day off, you know, and we give it to them. And, you know, you, you just kind of take your footage and you, you try and craft a good story arc with both guys. And to me, this was the best of the best one that we've done so far in terms of both fighters. They both were very interesting characters. Luis Ortiz you know, really blew us all away from the range of emotion. Like like we said before, you expect it from Deontay. Deontay's been a star now for, for five years, and he's been in the public eye for five years, and, and he is the heavyweight champion of the world, and he fits the bill of the heavyweight champion of the world, and he's got the big personality, but Lewis had... Lewis was funny, and Lewis was sweet and sensitive, and, you know, sitting him sitting there, you know, telling the story of how he left Cuba in that first show when he's running along the, the side of the mountains, magnificent shots by our, our crew out in Vegas. And, and the, the FaceTime call with his wife and his daughter and how much he missed them. And he spoke about his daughter's um, health problems and why he came to the United States and said there was a point where his daughter's finger was going to get cut off and you know he said if they cut off her finger I'm cutting off my finger and I mean it was just so emotional I mean just a simple FaceTime call with his with his daughter and and the range of emotion of this show this this particular fight camp and it's the first one we did with heavyweights um was was I think that our crew did a really great job uh, of telling the story from the field you know Jeff and Lanny and then Eric Barchi and, and, and Jonathan Nanberg in the edit room. I mean, they just did, they, they're brilliant. They're just really, really brilliant. And this show did record numbers on Fox. It's, it's actually becoming that, that, that show that follows these fighters trying to fill the void of a show that I used to work on, on HBO called 24 seven. This, the show is telling these stories as these fighters, uh, prepare for, for camp now, prepare for the fight, I should say. But before we move on, you, you talked about the, the great people working in, in the edit room. You, you have to give a shout-out to, to our favorite PA, Parth Mookie, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's guys like Parth who dig in and, 
and really scour the footage and and you know come to us with ideas and and say wow I found this great shot of this or I got it in I got it in this bin which is you know an avid term of where you store the footage um, but yeah I mean everybody every you know there's that we had three APs on this show digging in and 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 Parth and you know they are the um, they're the backbone of what we do you know they they're looking they're they're listening for the story ideas you know which sound bites to pick and um, ultimately the editors kind of craft it all into something but they they tee it all up for them and um, it's really an amazing it's an amazing process sometimes you know you you go home and you can't you, you don't even remember what what pieces they all start to blend together but you know you you know you did good work you know you did good work and um, and I'll segue you into the into the fight when we were out in Las Vegas I saw Leonard Ellerby and like he said I just can't believe the eyeballs on this mm -hmm. show and how great it is and there's a buzz about it when when people when we were out there and we were the fight camp guys and everyone's like oh we love the fight camp the PBC guys and the Fox guys and the, I mean it's really really it's really special to have been to be involved with this and and Scott Boggins and, and Craig Genest, who are our bosses, our executive producers at Five Films, really give us that, that um, you know, they give us the, the palette to, to paint this picture, which is really incredible that we get to do, do it every week. And, um, you know, I was especially proud of, of this one, and I've worked on all four of them. And I think they've all been great, but I really think that, I think we're getting better at it. I really do. And everyone has their own defined jobs, and they're all they're all working together. Uh, some people looking at footage, some people editing, some people uh, you know talking about story ideas, like you said. So everyone did a really great job on this series. So let's talk about the fight now. I know you were in Las Vegas for the fight. Before the fight, uh, you're looking at footage of, of everyone, uh, you know, Wilder, Ortiz, training camp, everything. We we talked about how good Ortiz looked in terms of how it is you know physically how good he looked. What was your initial thoughts going into the fight? Did you obviously the conventional wisdom was Deontay Wilder is going to knock out Ortiz, but it'll be a close fight just like it was the first time. Did you were you thinking along those lines, or did Ortiz show you something that you said, hey, actually I I think this guy Ortiz may have a chance. Um, first. First, uh, when and, and you know, a little secret, we did a little filming for the next fight camp. So um, we filmed a little bit before and after the fight. And actually, we filmed the fight. Uh, Nick Rourke did an unbelievable job. And, and I had never met either fighter because I was in the edits. Uh, when Lewis got out of the car, I, I thought he looked better in person than he did on TV. Um, he was in incredible shape. And then when Deontay walks by you, it is like it's like a superhero is walking through the building. I mean, it's it's uh, it's indescribable. I mean, as we were, uh, it's it's this six foot seven, this this mass, this this physical specimen is walking down the hall, and everything you've seen and heard, you know, over the past five years. But for me, the last four weeks was like. It was real and in front of you. It was like he looked like a superhero to me. I mean, that was the best way to describe him. 
and um, he jumps he jumped out of the hallway of the MGM as we were following him into the locker room and um, uh, when they got in the ring I I noticed um, you know like everyone saw that the Wilder was was kind of cautious early on or, or whatever you want to say but you know there were a couple moments um, you know Ortiz was a little bit busier uh, in the third round I think Wilder threw a, a, a really strong punch that kind of that kind of stunned and you could see we weren't that close we weren't that far away but you could see the the fluids flying uh, from from even far away and then in the fourth round, Ortiz, um, and I noticed it in the beginning of every round how quickly Wilder jumps up. Um, he's up before the, the 60 seconds, and he's always in the center of the wing waiting, uh, center of the ring waiting for, for Ortiz. And you just felt that it was going to come. You know, you felt that he was going to go get him. You felt it was going to happen earlier in the round. Um, uh, and then the other thing was like that there was a big Ortiz contingent there. I mean, there were a lot of people cheering for him and they were loud and they were boisterous and they were standing. And when something happened, you know, that, that place was electric. I mean, that place was from the minute that those guys walked out of the tunnel, um, which is an amazing experience to see live, uh, to, to the seventh round knockout. I mean, every every moment that something was happening, it was electric. I mean, it was, you know, Wilder threw, I mean, uh, Ortiz would draw a combination and, you know, he'd kind of, you know, give a little shimmy, like, you know, I just got you, and the place erupted. I mean, and there was definitely, definitely a big Ortiz contingent there. Yeah, and, and you could sense that on, on TV, that the crowd was into it. Ortiz doing his thing, definitely outlanding Wilder. It felt like watching at home. We know now that Ortiz was up on all three scorecards. The final punch numbers, Ortiz outlanded Wilder 35 to 34. But as I've been saying, it was that 34th punch by Deontay <laughs> Wilder, that big yeah. right hand that ended the night in the seventh round. So here, here's my next question for you. Wilder, uh, to set up the right hand, he was kind of uh, getting the distance, using his left hand as like a yard, as a measuring stick. And also, he he said after the fight that he was also trying to blind uh, Ortiz. He was trying to use the left hand to blind him, and then boom, there comes the right hand, and and we know what happened. That was the end of the fight. So he said that he worked on that in camp. He said that he was trying new things in camp, and that was one of one of the things he was trying was blinding your opponent and, and kind of hiding the right hand behind the jab. So my question is, you you saw some of the training footage? Did you notice him him working on things like that in camp? No, they were very they were very careful. Um, and and in the first phone call that 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 uh, Jeff Newton and I had with uh, JDs and and Chris Bates, uh, they were very careful about the strategy. Some. Some camps have let us shoot sparring and some camps have not. I think it's just, uh, you know, it's a matter of choice. Jay said, if I saw 30 seconds of slow-mo footage of any fighter, I'd be able to pull something out of it. So they gave us a scene in the fourth show um, where we shot everything but the sparring and we talked about it and Jay talked about how secretive it was. So there, uh, we did not get into too much strategy there. So... 
um, they were they were kind of secretive about that stuff. Now they weren't secretive about it, but you know we were never allowed to shoot the sparring, and um, you know when they were working out, they were working out. The heavyweights, uh, at least these two guys, seem to do it different. They would spar one week, and then they do boxing workouts the next week. So we had two weeks, and and they actually coincided, um, which which wasn't the best for us, but. Um, where they just sparred, and we were not allowed to shoot in either camp. You know, we were not allowed to shoot the boxing, the, the sparring in either camp. So it's it's hard to glean um, strategy like that. The one thing that I did hear, um, I, I heard Deontay speaking to someone after the fight, and he said, um, you know, in the fifth round, he knew he he had that perfect vision of him, and he knew that it that he was going to get him. Like he, everything lined up in the fifth round. At some point in the fifth round, that's when he saw that he was going to get him. Like, and he was just, I guess he just waited for that moment. I mean, that, it wasn't, it, I mean, that was, that was as straight and perfect a punch as you see. I mean, you know, just straight down the line like that. It wasn't a hook. It wasn't, uh, it was just, it was just pretty incredible. It, it really was. It was a thing of beauty. He actually was setting the trap the whole time, which is quite amazing. And he, and he said he, he doesn't really worry about the scorecards. He's generally down on the scorecards. Um, but we know he has the great eraser, a.k.a. that right hand. And that has done that has helped him out in every single fight except for Tyson Fury. And that fight, that first fight was a draw. So here is my question now. If it comes together the way that we hope it does, which is February 22nd, it'll be Deontay Wilder versus Tyson Fury, the rematch. Now, if, if you do do a fight camp on these guys, you would have another amazing character in Tyson Fury. How do you see that fight playing out? You know, the, the, it's, it's, it's hard to know because Fury danced around for most of the fight in the first fight, and he was able to outbox Wilder. Wilder obviously landing the massive right hand and then the left hook in the 12th round, Fury just beating the count. So it's anyone's guess, really, how that's going to play out. If you had to kind of uh, handicap that fight for us, how do you think that's going to play out? Well, you and I disagree on that fight, right? Don't we? I mean, you thought you thought Fury won the fight. No, I. I, I I'm. You know, I, I, the only thing I disagreed with is, as I heard someone say that it was a robbery that that Wilder lost. I don't. I don't agree that it was a okay. robbery. I think it was a okay. close fight in terms of you. You when you factor in the two knockdowns and then you factor yeah. in what Fury did. So I, I just yeah. don't think you could call it a robbery in either direction. That that was my only point. But I know that you you believe that that Wilder won the fight, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I think the two knockdowns were huge, and I think that I, I think that he was much busier in that fight than 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 he was in in the Ortiz fight, but there was, I mean, you know, the, the fury, the fury getting up in the 12th round. And then I, I mean, how dominant he was or, or the amount of punches that he threw after he got up when, you know, everyone thought that he was out for the count, including Deontay. Um, that, that was just incredible to me. I mean, it was almost like he almost came back and stole the round. Um, but I, I think it's going to be exciting. You have two great characters, two big, strong definitions of what heavyweights are. I mean, you know, has there ever been a, you know, two heavyweights this big, like six foot nine and six foot seven? And I mean, I was watching the WWE and watching him with 
Braun Strowman, who's about six foot nine, and and he towered over him. I mean, it was kind of. Um, I, I don't remember. Do you remember like two heavyweights who are, are this tall? You know, I, it's hard to remember to, that when there's two giants like this, and then they're yeah. equally matched, and they're both relatively in their prime, right? It's it's yeah. hard to imagine yeah. when it's like that. Yeah. Yeah, I I think this is. I mean, this is so big for boxing. It's so huge to have the heavyweight division. You know, Wilder kind of led this resurgence, and now we have. Um, we have Joshua and we have Ruiz and we have Tyson and, and Tyson Fury. And I mean, it's a real, it's really, it's like, you know, when I was a kid, like, and you'd see, you know, I mean, when, when we really go back to, to like, you know, the Ali days in the seventies and, and Ken Norton and, and George Foreman and Joe Frazier, I was kind of on the cusp of that as a kid, but I would always watch with my dad. And then, even like later on and you know when you had Tyson and Lennox Lewis and Evander Holyfield and you know it's been a long time since we've had you know heavyweight heavyweights who who were household names and it's really nice to see and it, it it's it's going to be an incredible night they were talking about the MGM today that 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 it's that they're looking at the MGM again so February 22nd Let's let's hope it comes together. It's the fight that everyone wants to see. And then, of course, uh, we can hopefully have that lead into uh, the winner of that fight fighting the winner of Ruiz Joshua, hopefully. And that would be absolutely incredible because that would be the lineal champion plus every single belt on the line. And, I, and that has not happened in the modern four-belt era. So it's a very exciting uh, 2020 on tap here in the heavyweight division. One thing that, that you just talked about, and I was just looking up numbers as you were speaking. So in the Wilder-Ortiz rematch, Wilder landed 34 punches through the seventh round. That's when he had the knockout. In the, the fight with Fury, Wilder-Fury, through the seventh round, it's interesting. He was around the same, and he was 36 punches through round seven. But when you look at round uh, nine, Wilder landed 13 punches, and then round uh, round 12, he landed 11. So his output went higher, and we know those are the rounds that he had the more pow- the power shots because he landed the knockdowns. So it, it's 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 interesting to see what his game plan will be. Maybe maybe this is his game plan where he has the kind of consistent uh, number of punches per round, and then he looks to find that big shot. And we'll see if he if he does that quote unquote risky style again. So to wrap it up, Eric, how many times did you hear uh, Bomb Squad in the last month? <laughs> uh, uh, so I gotta tell you something funny. When we the first day he did a giant one, and we all looked at each other in the edit room, we. We came up with an over-under in the edit room, and um, we said that we would hear 32, and we were not even close. I mean, we I think it was about six, like, that we got on our footage. Um... We got a lot of we got a lot of other things, but there I mean there were there were a lot more out in Las Vegas. Um, you know when he when he gets into that mode, but I think it's in the show two or three. Actually, it's in more because we use some archival bomb squads. But um, uh, it's an, it's just a, you know he on top of on top of the fact that you know he is the heavyweight champion, he looks the part, he sounds the part, he's got a catchphrase. He's got a catchphrase. People are walking down. He's walking down the hall. People go, Bob Squad. When, when he was walking out, I was behind him. And uh, you could hear it. You could hear, you know, 
twenty thousand people screaming it to him. So it's just uh, it, it's 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 really magical to see. It's it, it was a magical night at the MGM, and I think that. Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder on February 22nd is going to take it to the next level. It really will. So final question. Can I, can I get a bomb squad from you, Eric? Oh God. You really? <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll try. Bomb squad! Wow. That was okay. I was expecting like a two and that was a 10. That was incredible. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Eric Paulin, thank you so much for the time. We're looking forward to, I, I know I personally am, and I'm sure that the, the numbers show that people watching are looking forward to many more fight camps. Um, if we get Wilder Fury, that's going to be an incredible show. And we know the other, other great pay-per-views of the other great characters we're going to have. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you for breaking it down, giving us a peek uh, behind the curtain on, on how the show comes together. Um, and and uh, best of luck to you, and, 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 and I hope to chat with you again soon. Anytime, Card. So that brings us to the end of this episode of Ask the Experts with Karen Batia. I want to thank all of my guests, Deontay Wilder, Chris Bates, Jack Reese, Lee Groves, Dan Canobio, Eric Paulin. Thank you for listening. If you like the show, please go on iTunes, hit subscribe, give us a five-star review. Uh, I'm also putting a lot of my interviews on YouTube, so please subscribe to my YouTube channel. It's youtube.com backslash Curran Batia, C-U-R-R-A-N. B-H-A-T-I-A. If you want to follow me on my personal channels, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at at Karen Batia. Um, you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram as well. It's at A-T-E underscore podcast. If you want to email the show, it's askthexpertspod at gmail.com. I want to thank you again for listening. This is Karen Batia signing off for Ask the Experts. Thank you for listening to Ask the Experts with Curran Batia.